Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron Man. Okay? Yes. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, and they call me The Filth Master. Ah! You got went into like your guar voice there for a second. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have it too. I'll, 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 do, some, <laughs> okay. I'll do some. I'll do some post. Uh, hey, everybody! This is the Iron List. It's the podcast here on the critically acclaimed network where our patrons decide once a month which top ten list Whitney Seibold and I are going to present here on the channel. Uh, it's could be a genre, could be a filmmaker, could be a weird, silly idea, uh, and this particular episode of the iron list uh is a continuation of a series that we have been doing uh we've been putting the next step on the poll every few months just to see if people are still interested we started off a few months ago with the best movies that begin with the letter a then recently we did the best movies that begin with the letter b and now, oh, you know what? I'm sensing a pattern here. There's a mild pattern here. And uh, now we're doing the best movies that begin with the letter C. That's right. The letter C. This episode has been brought do. to you by the letter C and also our patrons. We should throw uh, throw them for a loop and ask them to list. Uh, we should like list films that begin with like the letter Tau, like a Greek letter. Mm, and, yeah. And we, can only and, and we can only choose mm. Greek films that begin with that letter. That'd be cool. Uh, I have to do some research. I haven't seen a terrible amount of Greek films, but I've seen several. Yeah, so have I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in any case, uh, so yeah, here's how it works. Uh, Whitney and I are both uh, film critics. We've seen a lot of movies. Uh, he comes up with the top ten list. I come up with the top ten list. Other than the fact that the movies begin with the letter C, and we're not going to uh, uh, split hairs over whether it begins with an article like The mm. or Uh. You know what or, we mean. You know exactly You've what we mean. You've been in a library. Yeah, we're not going to alphabetize it with The. Everything would be in the T section. That'd be absurd. So other than that, the criteria is ours to choose. We get to decide what's important, what counts, what uh, whether we're going with our favorite or the overall best or just movies we want to recommend. Uh and the other thing that's really important about the way we do top 10 lists is they're not really ranked. If they're on the top 10 list, it means we are highly recommending them. If you haven't seen them, we hope you do. And it doesn't really matter if something would be ranked 8th or 2nd. We want you to see all of these movies. Yeah. The only exception is number 1. We, and we save that for last just to live, give a little bit of... Uh, tension, a little well, bit that, of excitement, a little bit of I think a little bit of validity. Like mm. we do, we don't want to. We do want to have to say like we did have to make a decision. Yeah, you know, it's like if when all is said and done, you know, you said, "Hey, what's the best movie that begins with the letter C?" I would say, "Well, that's a very specific request for you to be really intense about." Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, here is my answer, and I will give you yeah. that answer at the end of the podcast when Whitney Seibold yeah. gives his answer as well. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to give a, a special thanks to uh, all of the authors of the source books on my desk that I was able to refer to Ooh. when we're going through an alphabetical list. Like the Psychotronic it's, Film Guide. The Psychotronic the... Film Guide. I have uh, one of Leonard Malton's guides. Video Just, Hound. Yeah, all, all of these big, thick, gigantic books are an invaluable resource when coming up with a list like this. Yep. Uh, and I recommend you do that. Uh, yeah. That is, get books. 
keep the books keep yeah. the books handy. Ha- ha- Many of the a, best movies wiki- I've ever seen yeah. came from recommendations in those books. Ha- yeah. Having a Wikipedia article isn't quite the same thing, no. and they're not ever going to be as exhaustive as those gigantic, thick Leonard Moulton guides. Yeah, and they're not, and again, it's it's everything you want like condensed in one place. It's not there's no distractions. It's just mm. boom, all the movies. Um, do, do, what was your first source book? Do you remember? Uh, it was this Entertainment Weekly book. They mm. actually put they actually published a book. Uh, it was like the Entertainment Weekly Guide to the 100 Greatest Movies Ever Made. Okay. But it was the 100 Greatest in Every Genre. Oh, okay. So nice. it was 100 Greatest Dramas, 100 Greatest Comedies. Uh, some of the subgenres they split up, like Westerns. Mm. I think they only had a top 50. Okay. Uh, there were uh, the 100 Best Movies We Couldn't Fit in the Other Lists. Just like miscellaneous. Yeah. And then, and this is, at the time, the 100 Best Laser Discs. Was also oh, in there as the, well. Those, those were on the the, the upswing. Yeah. They were going to be the next big thing. Yeah, and it was like the late nineties, early late eighties, early nineties when that came out. Mm-hmm. So, um, that book, honestly, I will give. I, I'm not like you know in the pocket of Entertainment Weekly. I don't think they're the most incredible publication ever. That book never steered me wrong. Okay. It was because of that book I saw the Stunt Man. It was because of that book I saw Reanimator for the first time and. Uh, let's see, Layer of the White Worm. Yeah. Like, there was a lot of really good, less than obvious recommendations that came from that book. Uh, and, uh, yeah, my, my, my young movie-watching experiences were better for it. Mm. What about you? Uh, I remember getting... Um uh, we got a blockbuster in our neighborhood uh, because there was already a video store in our neighborhood. You see, um, so they had to add a blockbuster in order to put that other store out of business. That's the way blockbuster operated. They were yeah, a, very a, parasitic, ag- aggressive assholes uh, when it yeah. came to their business practices. You ever see the movie You've Got Mail? Yeah. Instead of falling in love with the people at the small business stores, they just destroyed them. Yeah, that uh, on purpose. Yeah. Uh, but I was excited just to have another video store in the neighborhood. So it's like, let's go in there, let's check it out. I'll buy something just to support it. And I had because I had just had my allowance at the time and. Uh, I got from Blockbuster Video their video guide. It was like 1995 or so, mm. mid 90s. And it was I love, one of those I love big, this. I love books. this little little kid naivete you had. Oh, let's support this Blockbuster. No, this is just a, well. I mean, you know, I'm a little kid. It's just another video store. I know. It's just and funny it, to me now. It took it's me kind of very ironic. very little time actually because I was already a teenager to realize what the hell was going on. Yeah. It's like wait a minute, but my video store is wait a minute. <laughs> I actually like put that together myself. It's yeah. like, wait a minute, this one opened, but there's another video store. Wait a minute. Yeah, we had a blockbuster that opened two doors down from another video store. Yeah, what Literally the same block. Yeah, and uh, and I remember actually, my high school took us on a, uh, a field trip once to a Borders, Ooh. and we could go see what Borders was doing. And then we crossed the street, and it was just across the street on Westwood Boulevard here in Southern California. Oh, I remember. To the Sisterhood Bookstore. Yeah, which was this little indie-run lesbian bookstore, and they had all these wonderful like outre queer books uh and you know and and anything like a lot of counterculture stuff a lot of really more interesting stuff yeah just a lot of personality than you would find at borders and yeah and yeah that that you could not find at borders and then yeah right across the street was this massive two-story borders and a coffee shop and videos and Mm. the the teachers did point out to us like what do you think is happening here why did the borders open like this brand new borders right across the street from the sister the sisterhood bookstore. It's this tiny little yeah. thing. It's queer specialized. It's queer run. And, it's like legitimately and cruel to open. Yeah, a major and, and borders store like it, yeah. sees them as the threat. I know it's ridiculous. Anyway, that we're I'm off on a tangent. We're, we're let's off on a tangent. Our love for these movies and our awareness of these movies comes from a variety of different places, and we uh-huh. want to celebrate those places. Yes, even if they were corporate monstrosities, because after a while, that's all anyone had. Hmm. Uh, but in any case, uh, so, okay, once again, the topic is the best movies that begin with the letter 
see. And before we dive in, mm. one last thing. This is not an aside. This is important. I made one rule for myself. <laughs> What's your rule? I can't pick Citizen Kane. <laughs> now, that is not because Citizen Kane is not arguably, and I would make this argument if I were inclined to do so. Someone said, hey, what's the best movie ever made? Arguably the best movie ever made, Citizen Kane. Mm. Uh, however, it's kind of a cliche to call Citizen Kane the best movie ever made. It's not because it's inaccurate, but it's been talked to death. Mm. So I have made the decision that Citizen Kane is my unofficial number one. But I am not allowed to choose it. And the good news is this gives me an opportunity to maybe talk about a couple of films that might not otherwise have made the list. Okay. So that was my decision to make. I actually struck from my list anything we've talked about kind of recently. So uh, there's actually a lot of big classics uh, that are going to be conspicuously absent. How recent are we talking about? Like last year? uh, Like, yeah, like if if it's been on a podcast in the last year or so, it it was out of bounds. So I actually have, like, my, my top ten, I have my runners-up, and then I have the, the ones we talked about recently. Okay. Um, and which Citizen King would qualify, because yeah, we recently yeah. talked about that on the um, Only the Best podcast on right. our Patreon. Only the Best is a podcast where we talk about every film ever nominated for Best Picture, and we had only mm-hmm. just gotten to the year of Citizen Kane, so very recent. And, 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 yeah, a lot of these are, like, kind of obvious, so I just sort yeah. of sort of left them off and wanted to go right. with a little bit more of a new trade list, because right. that's where my heart lies. Right. Uh, Winnie, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? How do you want to do uh, it? You go first. Okay. So, uh, I like to reserve my top ten spot, like, it, again, it's not ranked, but, like, the first mm-hmm. one I talk about, for a movie that might not other normally make this list if other people were doing it, mm-hmm. something where I'm gonna just I'm gonna try to like use whatever little clout I have to sort of elevate a movie above what some people might think of it because I legitimately think it deserves the the praise. Right. Uh, however, I am cheating a little bit because this is a tie. It is, however, a tie because there are two versions of the exact same movie. There's the original mm-hmm. and the remake. All right. Okay. But I think they're both good, and they're both good in exactly opposite ways. <laughs> the, they, they could not be more different, even though they technically have the same plot. And that is Casino Royale <laughs> and Casino Royale. All right. There's also another Casino Royale. The, uh, Casino a, Royale was the TV movie of yeah, Casino Royale. Casino Royale was originally uh, the original James Bond book. It was the first book based on the adventures of... Uh, the fictional character James Bond is written by uh, real-life spy Ian Fleming. Uh, it was a big hit book. It was an instantly iconic character. led to a series of successful novels, which in turn led to a series of blockbuster motion pictures. Uh, however, through a weird stroke of fate, uh, the rights to the story Casino Royale didn't go to Eon, which had the rights to pretty much all the other stories. Mm. It had been oh, adapted. Okay. Yeah, it had been adapted once uh, in a TV movie in the 1950s, uh, starring Barry Nelson, uh, who is probably best known to most people as the guy who hires Jack Nicholson to run the Overlook Hotel on The Shining. Yeah, he was James Bond. Yeah, he was an American James Bond back before anyone thought that mattered. Uh, it was just a, it was just a story to adapt for TV, um, and uh, and uh, Peter Lorre played the poker playing villain Le Chief, Although I believe in the original they kept it in the original story it was Baccarat. I That's believe right. in the original st- I believe in the original two movies they kept it Baccarat, but they changed it to poker for 
uh, Casino Royale. I think it. I think because they wanted to appeal to a, an American audience, and well, Americans don't know Baccarat. Well, yeah, especially, well, especially mo- modern audiences don't know oh, Baccarat as well. I, I feel like modern audiences are familiar with the fact that uh, Texas Hold'em is considered sort of the uh, the current standard for poker, at least when I, th- I think it still is. Mm. Uh, so they figured, why why change that? Why mm. why mess? There's no reason to. It's kind of important. Uh, so when they made Casino Royale in 1967. Uh, there had already been some James Bond movies, but someone else had the rights to Casino Royale, so they said, "Okay, screw them." It'd be like it'd be like uh, uh, if you have the rights to like every Batman story except The Dark Knight, and then Disney decided to make The Dark Knight. Like yeah. it, was, it was kind of a dick move, but it's actually like a really interesting and subversive film, hmm. the 1967 Casino Royale, which was directed by. Five different filmmakers. <laughs> John Houston, Ken Hughes, Robert Parrish, Joseph McGrath, and Val Guest. The premise of the basic story of Casino Royale is there's a villain named Le Chiffre. He, ha- he needs to win a bunch of money at a, at a gambling tournament in order to fund his nefarious schemes or pay off his uh, villainous debtors, depending on which version of the story you're reading. Uh... In the 1967 version, they're already tired of James Bond. So here's the premise. James Bond, as played by David Niven, who's already getting a little older, he has retired, and the name James Bond has been given to other spies in his place. Mm. So when we met Sean Connery, he was the second James Bond. (laughs) And And, and the the gag that uh, there will be many James Bonds had already been predicted. Yeah. Uh, David Niven is somewhat ashamed of the new James Bond because when he was a spy, it was all about dignity and country. And this guy is just fucking everybody. Like, literally. He's just Mm. sex, sex, sex. Everyone's having sex. And it turns out that there is a massive, like, mass murder taking place of every super spy in the world because every villain knows it's the swinging 60s. You can get all these guys into bed and then assassinate them. So we're out of spies. (laughs) So David Niven comes along as... They don't actually say it, but he's basically an asexual James Bond. And he is trying to hire a new super spy workforce full of people with no sex drive. And that's really subversive to this sort of weird, macho, sexist spy franchise as it existed at the time. Uh, it is full of... It's got a gigantic cast of people who are mostly very, very funny. Peter Sellers is really good in this. Uh, Barbara Boucher uh, is fun in this. Uh, uh, Joanna Patet plays James Bond's daughter by Matahari. She plays Mata Bond. Right. <laughs> she has this whole weird side mission, and it's that's maybe one of the highlights of the movie. It gets really surreal and bizarre. Um, it's like a Mad Magazine come to life, <sighs> like just uh, all of that visual chaos and and weird comedic noise uh, that you you get out of like a more yeah. Drucker drawing is is just yeah exploding right in your face. Yeah, I'm I'm just I fucking love it. Honestly, like mm. it's weird, it's bizarre. Woody Allen is in it, and yeah, that's that that's not fun. But like, he's not in it much, and they do treat him like a piece of shit. Uh, so if that helps, <laughs> but uh, it is it's it's a comment on the kind of swinging macho sexist action storytelling mm-hmm. that w- that James Bond had already become after only a few movies. Uh, and it's actually a pretty smart comment on it, and it's also really I, I actually think it's really funny. It's hit or miss, but when it hits, it's really funny. 
Okay. And it's full of energy, and it's got a lot more creativity than a lot of the James Bond films that even I like. Uh, and I think it deserves to be reassessed today. I think if this movie came out today, I think a lot of people would be, wow, what a big swing. Like, people are just like, what an interesting attempt to undermine a whole franchise and its entire ethos. Mm-hmm. And I like it. And uh, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's a really good contrast to the Martin Campbell Casino Royale, which is the exact opposite. It's a straight up macho action movie. And it's a really good one. Like, it's a highly efficient, well told, un- like, the plot isn't super complicated, but it's mm-hmm. not stupid either. Daniel Craig is an excellent James Bond. He's actually got, like, really good chemistry. With Ava Green, it's not like this really weird forced thing where we have to have a romance because we're in a James mm-hmm. Bond movie. Like they actually have like good rapport. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is a great villain. They 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 shrink down the action so that there's not like a ton of giant stupid action sequences. Mm-hmm. There's just like a couple of big chases. It's just like the there's, ultimate. There's, there's parkour. It there came, is because it came out in the late 2000s yeah and uh, fair enough that was, no, that, this, was, that was the action trend at the time I, it was it was very much coming in the wake of the born identity which had stripped down the whole spy genre mm-hmm. uh it is a really good movie uh and also district b13 which is a french action movie that had introduced parkour into the action movie lexicon uh the action of that movie is unbelievable and i actually think they did a pretty good job of incorporating it into james bond um it's of its time, but I do believe that it is maybe the er example of the classic James Bond mm. stories. Uh, and I love that the other version of it is directly taking down the entire premise of James Bond. <laughs> so I think they're a great double feature. It was, yeah, it was taken down in the 60s and then built back up again several times over by yeah. 2050 years later. Dying when that movie came out? Uh, around there. Like, it was like well, 50 o- years six, later. I think. Yeah. yeah, fucking amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I like uh, I like both versions of Casino Royale. Yeah. Um, neither is my favorite James Bond movie, oh, but uh, what's your favorite James Bond movie? Goldeneye. Yeah, fair enough. Goldeneye is my favorite. I'll um, fight you on that. I, I feel like uh, James Bond gets the most interesting when uh, he needs to, by necessity, address world politics. Yeah, uh, and Goldeneye came right at the end of the Cold War when James Bond was no longer necessary, and we had to sort of address that in dialogue and if Goldeneye had been the last James Bond movie it would have been fine just because now we're in a post James Bond world they just yeah. kept on rolling because well that's money we, we need the character well uh, and then it, uh, bad stuff still happens in the world I, I know just because, but just because the Cold War is ended doesn't mean there aren't like the, the bad s- people and indeed the, but James the spy Bond movies... dynamic that was built up during the Cold War was what James Bond was built out of and sure. they needed to address that and adapt him if they were going to keep him at all. Agreed. I think Goldeneye did a great job. I, I, I think they should have retired him, but, you know, that's that's me. Um, and then, yeah, then along came Casino Royale, and that was the first... It wasn't the first post-9-11 James Bond movie. No, I think uh, it was, Die uh, Another Day yeah. was. But, but Die Another Day was really confused as to what to do. It's just a bad movie. It, like, oh, it's they, terrible. They wanted it's really it to be terrible. a little intense, but then they gave up on that after about 15 minutes. Yeah. And like, the was... first 15 minutes is actually a pretty good, like, tough guy James Bond movie, like, mm. taking it really seriously. And then we get Invisible Cars. Yeah, it's it's, it's it's surfing a, a giant they, 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 ice tidal they wave. They weren't sure how to put James Bond in a post nine eleven world yet, mm-hmm. so they added some stuff, but they kept the silly as they, well. They thought they could pay lip service and get yeah. away with it, and no, you needed yeah, to change so, the whole overall look. Yeah. So then, yeah. then there was a gap. Pierce Brosnan stopped playing the role they brought in Daniel Craig, and then Casino Royale was 
essentially the first post 9-11 James Bond movie where everything's a lot grittier and darker. We can't take this sort of action and international violence uh, with sort of the fluffiness that we once did. Mm. Uh, so I, I appreciate uh, the evolution it re- represented. I do think it has the best script of any James Bond movie. Mm. Like it has dialogue and characters what? And, and scene progression. It's not like, and James Bond is in Turkey for some reason. You know, it's, <laughs> we actually know why he's where he is at any yeah. given scene and why he's there. All I ask of a James Bond movie is that for, is for me to like be able to explain the plot later over dinner. Yeah. That's it. I don't want there to be like, and then he was here and I don't know why. Like, I actually just want to be able to say, and then he did this and I did this mm-hmm. and that's why I went here. Boom. Done. That's all I ask. Yeah. Although, that's all I ask. Although there, there is one weird bit of editing at the end of the first Casino or the, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale yeah. where um, he's knocked out. It looks like the end of the movie and he wakes up in a clinic and it feels like the rest of the movie is just a dream sequence. Wow. Like it, it's it's weirdly removed from the rest of the movie. Well, I think the idea with that one is that it's supposed to be and, and now uh, uh, James Bond has accomplished his goals and he's changed as a person. Mm-hmm. But then you, for, for a second you're like, oh, that's kind of nice. And you realize, wait a minute, this is a reboot of the James Bond movies. It cannot end here. Mm. Something bad is about to happen, and something really tragic happens. And I think it works. All right. Anyway, well, what's your what's your uh, well, first? Well, I thing? also have a spy movie huh. on my list. Um, my spy movie uh, was based on a character that was uh, invented around the time the James Bond movies started to get made. Mm. Um, I guess there were a couple James Bond movies already, and then uh, Japan uh, reacted by creating their own sort of hotshot spy character, Lupin the Third. And, uh, oh my god! Mangas. Oh my god! I and, didn't uh, think of this movie. <laughs> this should totally and, be my runner's and up. Lupin right. the Third was in in uh, one animated film um, for a studio called Monkey Punch, and then in 1979, Hayao Miyazaki made, uh, directed his first feature film. It's called The Castle of Cagliostro, mm-hmm. uh, that starred this Lupin the Third character. Now, Lupin the Third, if you don't know him. Uh, he he's an international spy like yeah. James Bond, well, but he's, he's also more of a thief, really. Or yeah, he's not. He's, he's, a, he's an international. It's um, a globe-trotting adventure, yeah. but he's a he's a criminal, not a thief. Mm. He's a, he's a very charming, um, likable criminal. He's a likable criminal. Yeah. He, he's. Uh, I guess he's he's more like uh, someone like diabolic than he is like James Bond. Yeah, I think he's, that's true. He's more of a yeah. He's a he's this cad character, but he does go all around the world and he does mm. get in these big sort of in, mm. international uh, stories he's, of intrigue. He's, he's the grandson of uh, Arsene Lupin. Mm. Uh, who was uh, a part of a series of novels re- written by Maurice LeBlanc. So basically, mm. there was a, a, like a French gentleman thief in a bunch of European novels, and then uh, in Japan, Monkey Punch, who was actually mm. the writer and illustrator of the original series, was just like, I'm just going to say this guy's his, gra- his like, oh, grandson. Monkey Punch is a person? Monkey I, Punch is a person. Oh dude. my god, I thought that was like the, the publishing house. No! Oh my god, I've been operating Katsuhiko under a misconception. Kato is, is, is the his pen name oh is Monkey my, Punch. Oh my god, I've been operating under this misconception for years. <laughs> I thought Monkey Punch was like... It's like the... the the, the studio like that like yeah. oh oh gosh that makes me really happy I, I, I feel, love that I was able to teach I feel that. like I'm such a, I feel like such an asshole you I'm so sorry that's I learned why we're something. here that's All why right. we're here the castle of Cagliostro is delightful yes. uh, it, it is about uh, uh, Lupin goes to this obscure uh, Central European Republic an imaginary country uh, and gets involved with this intrigue with uh, missing aristocracy and somebody who's trying to take over the country and. Uh, there's gigantic machines. There's chases inside clocks. Uh, what I like about mm. Lupin is that he's 
he's really scrappy. His suit doesn't fit him very well. He's always eating, you know, out of lunch boxes. He doesn't eat well. He's not, uh, he's, he's not high living. Mm. And, uh, his car, although it's outfitted with weapons, is this little tiny junker. Like, it goes real fast, but it's kind of a piece of crap. Yeah. Uh, and he always takes everything with good humor. Uh, mm. What Hayao Miyazaki did is turn it into something in between a James Bond spy thriller with some really good action sequences and almost like a Hope and Crosby slapstick comedy. Yeah. There's a lot of hilarity in this movie. There's a lot of whimsy, yeah. Mm. And, the, and the plot is about a woman who is like being held in a tower by this evil tyrant and mm. uh, Lupin has to rescue her and... Um, this is a movie that was like, had a really like, I believe it had a really harried production. They had to do it like really, really quickly. It's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of a miracle. It turned out as amazing as it did. This movie is enormously influential. Like right away, Disney started ripping this movie off completely. You know that like big clock fight in the great mouse detective castle of Cogliostro. (laughs) They were just ripping it off immediately. Um, this movie was actually controversial when it came out um, because the character of Lupin is portrayed as this really kind of, uh, I mean, he's a cad, but in that kind of Han Solo way where he'll mm. commit crimes, but at the drop of a hat, he'll do something heroic because he's not that bad a guy. Actually, if you look at a lot of the other Lupin stories, he's kind of a bad guy. Like he's oh, not okay. evil, but he's definitely more of an anti-hero than this. I'll, I'll say this: I I prefer the friendly version. I actually do too. Um, I I like a lot of the other Lupin stories. Oh. I think there've been a lot of amazing. I've seen some of the anime, a couple of the live-action films, um, but this is a great example, I think, of a movie that is an adaptation of a comic and is unfaithful, at least in spirit, and yet it connects. And I think it actually. I think there's a reason why this one hits people a lot harder than a lot of the more hard edge Lupin stories. Mm. Um, it's just, it's got this incredible, wonderful Spielbergian spirit. Uh, it's a great double feature with like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, it's spry. Uh, if, again, if you watch some of the other Lupin stories uh, or read the manga or watch some of the other Lupin series uh, afterwards, it might be a bit of a, uh, a bit of whiplash mm. just because some of like the, some of the stories are a, Quite a bit darker, actually. Yeah. Um, there's one. Um, Whereas in, in... Uh, there's hold on. There's a, there's this one I want to recommend it because it's amazing, but it's like really dark. There's a Fujiko Mine. Um, uh, the the woman called Fujiko Mine is incredibly stylish, like it's incredibly animated. Also super fucking dark, <laughs> but it's just a totally different take on mm-hmm. it. Like this franchise has just been interpreted wildly different and, ways. And there was a live action film just last year. Yeah, uh, they've they've made a couple. Of, no. Lupin, or, Lupin, or the live action film was a couple of years ago. There was a new CG animated film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just recently. Yeah. I saw the live action film on a plane once. It was fine. Okay. I liked it. Yeah. Just the, the character has been around. Uh, just he, he's not as big in the United States. So no. he's not talked about a lot. No, here. but most, most anime and manga mm-hmm. enthusiasts, he's a, he's a well established commodity. And if you mm-hmm. didn't know about him, you should check him out. And Castle of Calgioso is a great mm-hmm. place to start. It's a classic animated movie. I cannot believe <laughs> this is just didn't wind up on my list at all. I just somehow I didn't write it down. Oh, well, I'm it's, a little embarrassed because it's really I, great. That's okay. I didn't. I didn't know Monkey Punch was a person. I apologize to <laughs> to him. I feel like, I feel like a complete asshole. Right. Uh, but yeah, the Castle Caliostra is is, okay. is so delightful. There's a wonderful. Um, physical comedy that uh, mm. only someone like Hayao Miyazaki could animate. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Lupin has to... He, he finds where the princess is and mm. up in the tower. Yeah. And he, like, calculate... Like, like, not 
not, not like Sherlock Holmes. He just sort of looks at the rooftops in the village around the tower. Can I, and can if, I like if, Super Mario if, my if way he up can, there? Can yeah. he run and jump? And of course it's animated. So he runs, he jumps and you can see him getting, it's like yikes and away from uh, Robin Hood Daffy. Yeah. Where he's like failing worse and worse with each <laughs> jump. And he finally reaches and, you know, in that Elmer Fudd moment, like he scrapes his fingers against the tower and starts yeah. falling. There's a great underwater sequence where he realizes he's about to go over a waterfall and turns around and starts swimming the other way. Oh. And is able to stay like stationary so while he's fun. frantically swimming. Ah, it's it, so good. It's just it's it's really atmospheric. It's incredibly well paced. It's just a good action movie. It's a spectacularly good action yeah. movie. It's a classic. I'm so glad you picked it. I would have been so embarrassed mm-hmm. if it had been left off the list entirely. Thank you so much. Um, I thought you were gonna say I mean, for my number nine pick. Um, when you said you were gonna pick another spy movie, I thought you were gonna pick the other spy movie that was on my list. So I guess I'll just go uh, there. Uh, and this is Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Oh, okay. That's a good one. Fantastic fucking movie. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is this is around the time... In fact, this is actually nominated the same year as The Godfather Part Two, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I believe so. Uh, so, Francis Ford Coppola... Coppola was on a roll. <laughs> while, he was, while Francis Ford Coppola was making The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, he snuck in this incredibly intricate exciting character piece starring Gene Hackman. Uh, he plays a surveillance expert uh, whose his whole life is overhearing people's conversations, recording them. Mm. And he'll, he'll do it for whomever. And that's it. He has no life of his own. He lives his life entirely through the conversations of other people. And at the beginning of the movie, he is recording a conversation of what seems to be a pair of young lovers as they walk around uh, public square and their conversation is extremely enigmatic, and he doesn't know what to make of it. And he and can't hear all of it at no, first. No, and... can't hear every single bit, and he ends up trying to like scrub the audio, trying to figure out exactly what's going on with it, and it's only too late that he realizes what clues he was missing. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. Now, this is a story that has basically been built from uh, Antonioni's blow-up, yeah, which just, is the photography the audio, version, the audio version of yeah. Blow Up. Uh, Blow Up, great fucking movie. It's about a photographer who takes a picture and realizes that if he keeps blowing up this picture, he might be able to solve a crime. Uh, but it's also a swing in sixties movie, so there's like orgies and mm. fashion, and it's great and mimes. And oh god, I forgot about the mimes. Uh, it ends with the mime. Like that, that's like the coda of the movie is mime. Yeah. And it's, it's kind weird. of it also had a big influence. I think conversation and uh, mm. uh, blow up had a big influence on arguably the best Brian De Palma movie, Blow Out. Uh, yeah. Which is a really great movie starring John Travolta as a sound designer for a movie who was recording like wild sounds in a park to use as foley. Or uses background noise, and he accidentally records the sound of a murder. Or I think it's actually a political assassination. Like he, a car gets a blowout, but only only he, with his trained ear, knows that that wasn't a blowout. Someone shot out the tire, and that's a fucking great movie. That's a brilliant motion picture. Holy crap, they're all good. It's like it's this wonderful recipe for really great suspense because you give the audience everything they need right at the beginning. And then the movie gradually scrubs the image. The movie gradually peels away layers. And as the characters get more obsessed and more fascinated, so too do the audience, if you're even doing it halfway right. And I would actually argue that the conversation is the best version of this. 
Um, Gene Hackman is an incredibly lost soul in this movie. I just I think it's one of his best performances. Maybe his well, very best. He, he's he's socially awkward and. Uh, Possibly on the spectrum. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, these these were that that was not part of the vernacular at the time. So no one I think talks about him in those terms. But I think nowadays that would be considered probably his character mm. type. And um, so he doesn't know the depths in which he has fallen. And when the, the, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you know, at, at some point the mystery has to be revealed. The way the mystery in this movie is revealed, the, the the moment where all of a sudden it's like, oh, is one of the best versions of that I've ever seen. I remember seeing this for the first time. I rented this uh, on, like, I rented this from Blockbuster, actually. And uh, I, I watched it for the first time. I didn't know anything about it other than I heard it was great. And then I saw this moment where Gene Hackman, all he does is he does one thing, and then that thing goes in not the way you'd expect, and you see what happened here, and it, honestly, it scared the shit out of me. Even though it's not like a scary movie, it was just so morbid <laughs> and, and, and disturbing. Mm. And the ending of this movie is so perfect and sad. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's not a spy thriller. It is a story about people who basically lose themselves and ultimately their mind in the process of living through other people. And mm-hmm. it's a really excellent film. It's an excellent spy film. It's an excellent character piece. Really motion picture. But yeah. I, yeah. It, and it's, it's tricky. Uh, Coppola is trying to trick you. He, he, yeah. he has to use a filmmaking and sound design to obfuscate just the right information at just the right time. It, it feels like this masterful balancing act yeah. that he was able to do that with such deftness. Yeah. And while he was amazing. making the Godfather part two, yeah, Arguably, yeah. some people call that the best movie ever made, mm-hmm. and it was the same year. They were both nominated for Best Picture the same year. Hmm. Wow, hell of a thing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on. Let's see, uh, I, don't, I don't have a, I don't have a, any other like spy pictures. That's a good segue. I do have a murder mystery on my list, uh, and it's based on a board game. Yay! Uh, I couldn't, put, a, I couldn't fit this on my top ten. I'm so oh, glad you okay, did. Yeah, uh, the movie Clue from 1985. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a cliche now. I think it's it's gotten a little overexposed in terms of it's it's the effusive praise it receives. But uh, I, think, it's still, I think it's partly my fault. Remember, well, remember possibly, that Twitter like, thing? Yeah, somebody yeah. like there was some debate as to you know whether or not you could use the word classic to apply to certain movies. Yeah, and, and I and I posted uh, a thing uh, on Twitter basically saying. Um, I have a friend uh, who mm-hmm. says that uh, uh, I, I, retweet quote retweet if you think Clue is a comedy classic. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to prove a point to my friend, and I figured if people agreed, they would quote retweet. Mm-hmm. It went viral. Yeah, it was it like expl- <laughs> it was like one of those t- Twitter t- you trended on Twitter. Sort I've, of I've trended on Twitter twice. Once was for Clue. And once was for my explanation of the cowbell scene in Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Which got you a speaking gig, if I recall. I got, I got to, like, help teach a class, like, in, in like, uh, the use of comedy as subversion. <laughs> like, the use of comedy tells for, like, social change, actually. Mm. It was really, it was really cool, actually. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, but basically a lot of people came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, I think Clue is officially a comedy classic now. Which is weird because it was not successful when it came out. No, it was, it was a bit of a... It wasn't a bomb, but yeah, it wasn't successful. Yeah. Uh, it has uh, a wonderful cast of beautiful comic luminaries. 
Uh, uh, Tim Curry, yeah, Tim, Michael Tim Curry McKean. Is, yeah, Tim Curry is the butler. You got yeah, Michael McKean. You got uh, Martin Mull. You have Madeline Kahn. Who's amazing. Uh, you have Eileen Brennan. Uh, you have yeah. uh, Leslie Ann Warren. Mm-hmm. And, um, Colleen Camp. Co- Colleen Camp and Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, uh, that's all, that's all, to, all together. Holy and, uh, shit, that is that is maybe one of the best comedy ensembles ever assembled. And the pacing in this movie is perfect. Mm-hmm. It starts really slow. It's about it people who have been invited to this spooky man, just old dark house sort of setup. Yeah, uh, the butler lets them in one by one, and they get to like a little introductory moment. And once they're finally all together, it's like it's moving really slowly. Everything's really kind of strange. You realize that nobody knows each other, yeah. and it's very mysterious. They go, they go eat dinner, and yeah. then uh, Mr. Body, uh-oh, uh, bad name. <laughs> What's going to happen to that guy? Played by, played by Lee Ving, punk rock musician. <laughs> really weird. Like, it comes out of nowhere casting, and honestly, I don't know if a lot of people today would even know who he was, yeah. but like, that's, it's cool casting. <laughs> Uh, and it's revealed that he's involved. He's the blackmailer who's been yeah. blackmailing them all, and then uh, decides, well, everything's everything's got to come to a head tonight. So here's a bunch of weapons from the board game. Yeah, a and candlestick, there's, there's, a rope, a pistol. So, yeah. Some 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 murder's gonna happen, and they turn out the lights, and when they turn them on, we're off to the races, and it, yeah. it becomes this bedroom door slamming farce yeah. where people are just running from room to room and. and People begin appearing, like other people appear at the mansion, and then they're all murdered. It's like you remember those cars. I, I assume you can still get them now, where like you slowly pull them back on like a table or something. Go, oh, those are common. Yeah, yeah. get a little and rubber then band, let, and then you let them go, and they go. That's clue. <laughs> it's like you you started like I I remember rewatching last time we watched mm. it. I was like I forgot how slow it opens. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It's not interminable, but it feels just like kind of like a real movie, and then. But they once, have to set all that stuff yeah, up, and, they, and you're intrigued. Yeah, we're intrigued. You don't know where this is going. It's kind of confusing in a way because you really thought it was going to be more madcap. And then by the end of the movie, where everyone is literally running breathlessly to every single room in the house over and over and over again, and like reenacting murders and accusing everybody, and people are shooting down chandeliers and shit, and pretending to dance with fake bodies or mm. I'm sorry, with dead bodies. And you don't know how you got here. <laughs> we started so normal tonight. What, how did we get this weird? It is exquisite comedy. Mm. Just one of the great movie comedies. I love it so. W- wonderful it was like little, my number like, 11. I yeah, couldn't, like, like bon, yeah. bombos and witty one-liners. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, rather famously, it was uh, three separate endings were filmed. And if mm. you if you study the film, because they had to think all this stuff out, so yeah. you, this is a, a kind of film that warrants repeat viewing, so you can study the little details, yeah. where the characters are, who's not in the background of this one scene, and shows yeah. up later. Really important. Uh, and all three of the endings fit within where they've placed the characters. Yeah. So theoretically, it could have been this person, yeah. this person, or yeah, and ending the, three. Well, well, you'll see how ending three goes. W- the, when you when you get it on home video, uh, you can. It was released with all three endings, like in succession, so you can watch one, then the second, then the third. If you just keep on watching, mm-hmm. uh, but when it was released theatrically, the endings were randomized at different theaters. Yeah, so you didn't know what ending you were going to get. Yeah. But the the ultimate version of Clue, I actually think, is the home video version because yeah. it's really really great, and it ends with this really deft, exciting. Wow, I can't believe what a wonderful ending that was. And then there's a title card, like in a silent movie, with this wonderful, cheerful music. And then it says, that's how it could have ended. But what about this? And then we see one of the other endings. 
and then they say, but here's how it really ended. <laughs> and the third ending is the craziest ending of all. Mm. But it's also brilliant. <laughs> it's a brilliant ending to a comedy. Yeah, you know what? In retrospect... Actually, you know what I'm going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to cross something off? I'm going to cross something <laughs> off and make this officially part of my top ten. All right. I love Clue so yeah. much. I'm so, You know what? It's been a while since I talked about it at length. This is this is going on. This is this is on my official top ten. All so right. I want you to pick the next movie because that's my number. I'll be <laughs> okay. my number eight. That's how much uh, I love well, it. Well, let's see. Um, the here's a movie that has murder in it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to, to segue in a weird way, uh, actually, I have a couple movies with murder. Yeah, in so them. do I. Uh, I'm gonna go with uh, City of God. Okay. Uh, City of God um, came out in 2002 in the United States in 2002. It's a Brazilian film about the favelas. Uh, that is. The, the the ghettos of Rio de Janeiro. Yeah. And uh, it's about... Uh, the, the plot is about a young... Uh, he's an aspiring photographer who has become embroiled in the kind of inescapable world of uh, criminals that have taken over this, this these favelas. And they... Uh, and we get to see the process of people who grew up in that area how crime and criminals are just sort of part of their neighborhood and how the criminals tend to uh, incorporate and induct people into the criminal circles at a very young age. Mm. So you have like eight and 10 year olds like murdering each other in the streets in this movie. And a lot of these details weren't being released because of the the Brazilian government didn't want stories. Those stories reported. So a lot of the plot of the movie is about how this young photographer has to get the, the information out uh, but more than anything, it's just sort of a slice of life of what this world is, and it is energetic and stylish in a way movies weren't uh, yet. Mm. Like it, this, it was like super hypercharged, and I think a lot of movies that came after City of God mm-hmm. took a lot of its their photographic and pacing cues from it. It's interesting, and all because, of a sudden you had like yeah. if you look at like Danny Boyle movies that mm. when he started moving digital, yeah. a lot of uh, like he was working in that sort of that same uh, milieu at the same time. And I think he yeah. started to push that aesthetic forward. But I think City of God was really kind of uh, the flashpoint for a lot of filmmaking styles that yeah. would dominate the well, rest of the decade. There was there was this movement, and it started off, uh, I think, arguably with uh, the MTV generation, where there was this, mm. all of a sudden there was this huge market for short films that were all made to music, music videos. And some people were doing really creative things. Some people were just filming performances. Some people were telling complete stories. And as those filmmakers started moving into feature filmmaking, they started to bring that kind of rapid-fire, in-your-face, ultra-stylish style to it. And we started seeing a lot of films that were... A lot of them were crime films, because it's a very exciting way to sort of make your debut, especially with Mm -hmm. films like Pulp Fiction coming out and everyone wants to make their own crime film. Uh, But also a lot of people have been influenced by Martin Scorsese. And so we we started seeing... A variety of these like really kind of hyperactive, ultra stylized crime epics. And I'm thinking of things like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels oh, or go. Belly. Yeah. If you've ever seen Belly, it's mm. incredibly oh, over the, the top. Yeah, that, that's that's just a music video. It and, but, really is just but, a music video. But I, I mean, it's it's but beautiful. Think, but it's yeah. clearly influenced by a lot of crime uh, uh, classics, and it also has it also has a point to make in in the end. Um, and I think City of God is one of the key examples of that. I haven't seen this movie actually since it came out, so I don't feel particularly well uh, equipped to discuss it, although I do want to make a... Because uh, I feel like a lot of people are quick to uh, credit this movie to Fernando Morales. Mm. Uh, it was also uh, directed by Katya Lund. Yeah, and, two uh, directors And, and uh, Katya Lund doesn't get 
name checked as often mm-hmm. with it because uh, Fernando Monero has made a lot of other movies like The Constant Gardener that also like won Academy Awards and things. Um, Constant Gardener is not very good though. I don't think it is. It's I really think it's really. Film, I yeah. think it's just rather straightforward and, and yeah, and mm. I'm I'm not a fan. Um, but uh, I do remember the absolute crackerjack energy uh, of this movie. Mm. It's just. It it feels like it was like the whole movie was shot out of a gun, mm-hmm. like the whole thing is just like we have to ch- sort of bull in a china shop, barge our way through yeah. every single scene. Every single scene needs to feel not just like you are there, but, but you are there and you're, you're might be, out of breath while, yeah, while like, you're there. Like you just walk, you just ran from like the cops and walked into the room, and here's what you're seeing. Mm. Like it's that level of adrenaline. And uh, it's incredibly infectious. It was there was a reason it was nominated for uh, best director, but weirdly enough, not film. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean politics submission to the Oscars. So. The I say this all the time. The Oscars are no bellwether for actual quality. True, uh, true. We, we, we we follow them and we we write them down for posterity's sake, but uh, they're not the actual. I movie. actually keep forgetting they're out yeah. this year. Like it's this it's this weekend. Yeah, I know. I I, I actually. I'm I'm working during the Oscars because yeah. I had forgotten about them. We don't we don't have like an Oscar special we're doing this yeah. year. We're just not. We're just like it's not it's no disrespect. Hmm. It's just um it's not where we're at right now, I think mentally. So it's not something we'll talk about them when yeah. when they're done, but I don't think we're gonna do like yeah. a prediction special like we often do. Yeah, City of God was one of those um frustrating frustratingly uh scheduled films. Mm. Because it was released in mid January oh, before it's amazing like, anyone remembered it. Yeah, like at right, all. right yeah. before uh, the the Academy Awards from the previous year. Mm. Uh, there's no way it was going to be remembered for the next year. And uh, indeed, I, I remember uh, when Roger Ebert came out with his list of the best films of of 2001. Yeah, he included that this on it. It's like this is a great film. You got you to see it. In fact, I'm going to put it on my top ten list now. <laughs> like it's it's mid it's like it came out right at the beginning of January. As far move. as I'm concerned, that fits under the the wire. Again, these are our lists. We get to decide yeah, what, so, what the criteria is, and and that caused like such a stick. How dare you? It doesn't te- <laughs> technically count. It's like okay, fine, whatever year. See it anyway. Yeah, see it because it it's it's great. It's important. It's re- it is an exhausting watch though. Yeah, like this is not oh, one, yeah. this is oh, not yeah. one you doze off to. This no. is one you need to have you a lot of energy. You can't, you can't when you start it. You can't play Wild Rift on your phone. Yeah, while yeah. you're while you're watching City of God, you will be eyes locked on mm. the screen. Um, I was thinking about. I'm actually another reason why I removed uh, something to make room for Clue is a lot of my movies are actually pretty dour. Okay, which is a little atypical of me. I tend to like my movies mm. with a little bit more um, levity. Yeah, levity at least at least more like tonal variety. Mm. Uh, but a lot of the movies that are on here are are real downers. <laughs> Um, That's fine. I, 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 I find these movies exciting, or in some cases nourishing. And in the case of uh, Michael Haneke's Cachet, uh, I find it a little terrifying. Uh, Cachet is a thriller starring uh, Daniel O'Toole <laughs> and uh, Juliette Binoche. They are C- Cachet an, is this close to being on my list. I, I thought I'm actually surprised it didn't make it. Yeah. Um, here, I'll, I'll I'll even show you. Like here, here's yeah. my list up here at the top, and it's like my first runner up. Is Cache. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, so Cache again. It's a it's a it's a very restrained thriller, but the thrills are there. Uh, and it's about this uh, very bourgeois French couple, and all of a sudden one day at their doorstep, there's a videotape, 
And the videotape is a very short video of the front of their house. That's it. It's a still shot of Nothing's the happening. House. No one's threatening them. It's just they're being watched. And it's weird, but they're not thinking anything of it until it happens again. And again. And all of a sudden, this relatively banal existence that they had, where they were reasonably successful and happy in their work, they have a, a relatively nice, if somewhat uh, you know, aloof teenage son, uh, all of a sudden, that's completely pierced, because they know someone's looking at them. And when Not, not doing anything. No. Just looking. Looking. And the movie is about, if you knew someone was watching you, if you knew someone was keeping an eye on you, what's the first thing in your head you would assume you did to to deserve it? What's the first thing mm-hmm. you're thinking to yourself, oh no, they found out I did this, or they think I did this, or oh, it's this person I may have wronged when I was young. And this sends them on a spiral as they try to figure out who have we pissed off? Who is out for revenge? Who is out to hurt us? And, 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 and all, oh. of, all of these are assumptions, too. Yeah, they have nothing to go on. No. It's just this human nature thing where if, we, if we're being watched, we assume that we, we mm. start filling in the gaps and start, like, coming up with this narrative mm. of persecution or aggression or stalking. And they end up creating a, their own kind of, like, horrible nightmare mm. tragedy hell. And and there's, there is some intrigue. There actually yeah. is a plot that they uncover, some connections, mm-hmm. but it may not be a plot that has anything to do with the videotapes. No, this could be something so, they could have dug up their own dirt, and it has nothing to do with what yeah. they're doing. They don't know. They don't know. All they know is this has created a situation where they're going to look into their past, find something horrible that they did or think they did, mm-hmm. and they're going to start basically bringing it into the forefront and ruining lives. Hmm. And it is absolutely terrifying and in its simplicity, which I admire. It's yeah, very, a, very subtle. Uh, Michael Haneke, uh, we get to see the, the tapes. Uh, so there are uh, several shots in this movie where it is just that single static shot of what's yeah. on the tape of the front of a house. And all you're doing is scanning the image, trying to look for clues. Yeah, yeah. And, and it ends with one of those shots. The credits like kind of appear on the screen while we're launching one of those static shots. Uh-huh. If you know where you're looking, there's like all kinds of clues in that last shot. That last shot. Or are there? It's, no, it's really kind that, of... That know. last shot, this movie is really enigmatic, but if you really pay attention to the very last shot of this movie, the answers are there. Yeah. And... Boy, is that brilliant. <laughs> it's, it's, it's another one. It's kind of like the conversation or blow up or whatever. Where like, It is actually mm. where we're looking at these these images over and over again, trying to figure out what's actually going on. And I, I just marvel at the cleverness of this and the cleverness that doesn't lead to action or distraction. Mm. It leads to introspection. And, there, and there's and a lot and there. And fear. Yeah. The, well, yeah. and we go about our lives assuming that uh, we're the only ones watching. Mm-hmm. That not one person is looking at us, and it's when we think someone might be that we start to get a little edgy. Uh, this is sort of uh, I've, I've always had this idea, like uh, you know, when all of the, the the Snowden news broke, and they can use mm. your computers to spy on you, and they're actually they're looking at you right now. If there's a camera facing you, yeah, they're looking at there's, you right now. Yeah, there's a really decent chance. Yeah, and um, I, I I was of two minds of this. It's like okay, they're looking at me. What are they going to see? I don't care. You know, what, yeah. what are they going to do with that information? It's, it's not, yeah. not that important to me. But then 
I, if you realize you're being watched, you are going to alter your behavior a little bit, aren't yeah. you? Even if that it's nobody's going to look at it. Mm-hmm. It's in like a bunker, like a government bunker somewhere far away. Only government workers will see it. Maybe three guys somewhere, but yeah. like they're not going to ever use it against you. Or will but, they? Or will they? It's, on, it's all the honor system, isn't it? But you know that uh, that you're being watched. Can I, I uh, take this? For no, right. I I remember. Um, this is a little off topic, but. Um, the reason why the Snowden revelations meant was I, I assumed they were doing that anyway. Yeah. And the reason why is because of the movie Eagle Eye. <laughs> now, if you remember the movie Eagle Eye, it starts Shia LaBeouf and, and I think, was it Michelle Monaghan? It was Michelle Monaghan, yeah. yeah. And the whole thing is uh, there's a AI computer working in the government that like is monitoring everyone in America simultaneously and it's uh, trying, to, trying to destroy this guy's life and manipulate him into doing something. The plot's really stupid. Mm. But I remember watching a late night interview with like Shia LaBeouf and like Conan or whatever. Yeah. And... Um, they asked about whether or not this is plausible, and Shia LaBeouf said, "I did some, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about, so I like went to the government and like asked if I could like ask some questions, and th- they were just like, uh, yeah, hey, you want to hear you on the phone?'" And they just played him a recording of him on the phone with someone like a year ago mm. that they, they just, just had. had it, yeah. They just recorded it, and in case they ever needed it again, and he and I was like, "That's." Not cool. <laughs> That's kind of terrifying. And I love that they were just not... It wasn't a secret. They showed Shia the fucking buff. The fucking... This fucking ass... Okay, anyway, so... <laughs> anyway, I, I'm pretty jaded about mm-hmm. the world in which we live. And I think Cache is a really smart film about that. Yeah. It's about uh, when all of a sudden you realize that your reverie, this world in which you live inside your own head, isn't... You're, like, you're not alone there. Mm. And that's scary. And I think it's a really scary movie. And I think it's a very subtle film. And it's a, a truly excellent motion picture. What's your next mm. pick? Uh, well, you said you're you're skewing a little bit dour. Um, and mine is actually skewing a little bit. I guess I have plenty of dour pictures, but I have a few silly ones as well. Ooh. Clue is you know a nice broad comedy, but uh, you don't get much more broad uh, broad Rob. Rob. <laughs> you don't get much more broad than director Bob Clampett. Who okay. in 1943 directed a corny concerto, one of the best of the Merry Melodies cartoons. Okay, I'm going to say this right now. Oh. We never said they had to be features. No. So I'm just I'm just going to say this right now. Mm. Fair enough. Thank you. Although all bets are off <laughs> from here on out. I love a corny concerto. Okay. Uh, yeah, Bob Clampett uh, isn't as celebrated or as widely seen as Chuck Jones or Frizz Freeling yeah. uh, because the Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling shorts uh, and Bob Robert McKimson, he did the Foghorn Lincoln uh, cartoons. Mm. They were uh, much in much wider uh, distribution in like Saturday morning cartoon blocks. Uh, yeah. And I think it was it had something to do with just what blocks of uh, cartoons that TV stations would buy. So we got to see Chuck Jones a lot, and mm. that's fine. Chuck Jones is a brilliant director. Yeah, he was he was sort of the uh, the master classman of of the Termite Terrace. Yeah, uh, Bob McKimson was like more of the character guy. He he was the one who sort of focused on like a funny character. He was like I said, he invented Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, Frizz Freeling was sort of like a little bit more of the the workman. Bob McKimson was the maniac of the bunch. <laughs> like if, if you're if you've ever seen any Bugs Bunny cartoons where he's like panicking and ugly and wrinkled, yeah, that's 
Bob Clampett for you. Um, and uh, a corny concerto begins with uh, Elmer Fudd coming out as sort of the conductor, and they're clearly spoofing Fantasia. Where you know the orca, you know the the orchestra leader comes up and says, "This is Fantasia. And we're going to do some very important pieces of music, and we're going to set them to animation. And it's this important artistic thing." And it bombed. It was a joke. So uh, the termite terrace assholes that they were decided to make fun of Fantasia. So they have <laughs> Elmer Fudd coming up in the flapping dicky, and he's unshaven, and his gloves don't fit, and he's like, "And we're going to have some willy willy good music." And it's all, uh, yeah, it's all the music of. Um, uh, Strauss, I believe, and there's a, a segment where Porky Pig is hunting uh, Bugs Bunny, and there's a bit with Daffy Duck as a as the ugly duckling, essentially, he's trying to get in with a school of swans, and it's like baby Daffy Duck. Mm. Uh, this is notable because this is the first time those three characters appeared in a cartoon together. Uh, they typically would only star, like, be the star in their own, uh, or I guess those four characters, uh, and. Golly, it is just a wonderful uh, joke delivery system. Uh, it, it's not so gagamented as like maybe the Tex Avery cartoons, but it's right. a lot more broadly visual and fun uh, than than a lot of the other uh, Looney Tunes that you might be more familiar with. Uh, it's one of the best. It is one of the best. It, it's not near. It's not in the same school as something like Duckamuck or What's Opera no, Doc. No, or, right. or, it's been a long time since I've seen I, it. But it's, I, not yeah, top, it's not my. It's not in my top ten. Bully for Bugs and Drip Along Daffy. These are like the classics, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Uh, but according to Concerto, in terms of like the Bob Clampett shorts, is like one of the three best Bob Clampett cartoons. And and I love it. And I think you should see it. You can find it online. It's eight minutes. Yeah. Watch, watch it now. Pause the, pause the show. Watch it now. Yeah. Giggle Seriously. a lot and then come back. There's no, there's no excuse not to, honestly. You might as well. Um, I, again, I haven't seen this one in years. I'm probably mixing it up with a couple of other similar cartoons. Mm. Uh, so I don't have a lot to add to this one other than, you jerk, I didn't know we could do that. <laughs> well, uh, well, it was, um, I think, Walt, Walt Disney first started calling the uh, his animated shorts Silly Symphonies. Uh-huh. And they were uh, music-based. And uh, it, that's where... Um, Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes got their ideas. Mm. Uh, they were sort of ripping off Disney. Uh, indeed, uh, Chuck, if you watch some like really early Chuck Jones shorts, he was also just ripping off Disney. He was doing a lot of the Disney style stuff, and they kind of grew into their own, uh, kind of using Disney as a springboard to be complete wiseacres. Mm-hmm. And a corny concerto is the ultimate joke on Disney. Mm. Well, yeah, they're, they're making fun of Fantasia. They're making fun of the name. It's just this total incredibly rude spoof of something that is incredibly well-mannered that needed to be taken down a peg a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my next pick is not an animated short. Cause mm. again, I didn't know we could do that. Well, just gotta be, think, think a little bit more creative. I need to think outside the bun. Um, okay. So, <laughs> you, didn't just say that. <laughs> you know, if it, if it doesn't get all over the place, it doesn't belong in your face. That's that is that is advice I have taken with me and used every single day. That that is maybe one of the, like the single most embarrassing things Madison Avenue's come up with. It's like right there next to Lego my ego. It's completely absurd. Well, do you know what else is absurd? Oh, do tell me. It's absurd that people don't talk about Kiyoshi Kurosawa's cure more often. I probably would had I seen it. Oh dear! Yeah, this this one is. I know it's a gap. It's a gap in my education. Well, it's, again, it's not a movie people talk about a lot, and I'm deeply convinced it is one of the best horror movies of the '90s. 
Uh, and I mean like top two or three, and which makes it one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, this is a film uh, from 1997, and it was part of this kind of new renaissance of, J- of uh, Japanese horror. Uh, it came out around the same time as The, uh, the Ring uh, and uh, Juan the Grudge, and then that started influencing a of, America. A lot of this like, would be remade in the United yeah. States. Yeah. But, but for whatever reason, well, Ring and Juan really caught on everywhere, mm. Cure remained kind of quiet. And perhaps it's because if Alfred Hitchcock made a horror film about a mesmerist serial killer, uh, it wouldn't look anything like this. This would be if Stanley Kubrick did it, and that's what I meant to say. Oh. Uh, this is this is an intensely Kubrickian serial killer story, and it's genius. So it's about a, a cop who is investigating uh, a series of mysterious murders. Uh, people keep having, uh, I think, the letter X carved into their neck. And the only thing that they can find to connect them is that they all had a conversation with someone ahead of time. And what they find is that there is a mysterious drifter who is a complete amnesiac, but feels compelled to hypnotize people constantly. And not in that kind of movie, you know, I'm going to spin my wristwatch kind of way. They're using actual hypnotic techniques in the movie. Like the idea of rhythmic language and mm. uh, rhythmic noises and keeping your voice at a particularly low level and using particular kinds of lighting in order to lure you in these incredibly long, uh, elaborate, seemingly tranquil shots from having a conversation with a perfectly nice-seeming stranger to something is horribly wrong here to it ends in terror. Uh, it's one of the most measured and controlled horror movies I've ever seen in my life. It is not trying to get you. It's not trying to do a jump scare. It's not trying to entertain. It's trying to lull you into a meditative state. And then while you're there, scare the shit out of you. (laughs) And that is an incredibly daring thing to do. Uh, I have recently become more interested in meditation as a means of controlling my anxiety. Uh, I have found it very effective. And the more I learn about it, the more appreciation I have for Cure and how Kiyoshi Kurosawa is subverting meditation and transforming it into something uh, that I think speaks very uneasily to the almost distracted nature of man. The ability that other people have to manipulate us without us realizing them. Mm. For us to adjust ourselves to other people's tones. For us to adjust ourselves to the wavelength of the room. And how that can backfire really bad. Why, why yes, William, The Cure is an excellent movie. <laughs> the Cure is the kindest, bravest, most powerful man I've ever met in my life. Hi, my <laughs> name is The Cure. My voice yeah. is my passport. It's actually just Cure, but uh, oh, okay. it, it, the, the, in case you're looking for it online. Right. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a lot of groovy 80s tunes. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, 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 I wish you'd seen it so that we could have a bit more of a back and forth about yeah. it. Uh, because I don't want people to like know more about it than I've already said. I've actually might have already said too much, but it's one of those situations mm-hmm. where if I don't tell you a little bit more about it, you might not see it. Uh, and I want to make sure that when you do, you are thinking about not just like, oh, why this 
guys doing creepy things, but like how the filmmaker is using cinematic techniques and techniques that go beyond what cinema is mm. in order to lure you into a very different pliable state. It is incredibly powerful filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I consider this one of the best horror movies I've ever seen. Nice. Have you ever seen Herzog's Heart of Glass? No, I haven't the, seen that one. That, that's the one where he hypnotized the actors. Oh, yeah. He, 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 yeah, like, would, would hypnotize each of his actors before the scenes, and they would act their scenes under hypnosis. Yeah, weird. Uh, as this weird sort of exercise, uh, it, like, aesthetic exercise. How does it turn kind of out? Like, uh, very odd. Uh, okay. the, the pacing is a little odd. The, the scenes kind of, dr- they feel really kind of dreamy and drifty. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, like there, there is a story, there's a plot and there are characters, but uh, yeah, it, it has this very strange detached that I've watched it twice and I can still barely remember it. Like it, <laughs> it feels like something you kind of dreamed. And I think Cure has a similar uh, yeah. uh, vibe. Um, anyway, it, this movie is not talked about a lot. Please check this movie out. I, again, it's a scary movie, not for everybody, but if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, I think you're really going to get a lot out of it. And I think more people need to know how brilliant Cure is. Okay. Uh, what's uh, what's your next on your list? Uh, I have a film that's also very Kubrickian. In fact, it would have to be. It's by Kubrick. Oh. <laughs> it's uh, it's a Clockwork Orange. Okay, and all right. I, I really love a Clockwork Orange, and not in that hipster way. <laughs> Clockwork Orange, um, I feel like it's one of those films that needs to be separated from its reputation a little bit. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of uh, audiences, especially like young male audiences, you, you discover a Clockwork Orange when you're a teenager, and Alex, the main character, mm-hmm. seems really cool. Really? And uh, well, he's having a good time. He's got a lot of yeah, power because evil. he is evil. Yeah. And it makes evil look fun. The mm-hmm. way like a, a you know, Scorsese at the first like the first third of a gangster movie, being a gangster looks really fun. Yeah. There's also two other thirds to those movies. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should watch the whole film before you come up with your conclusion about whether or not it's good to be a gangster. Yeah. Oh wow, how how fun. The Irishman. Oh wait, these people just like die alone and miserable in prison. Yeah. Nobody loves them. Nobody cares yeah, about just, they live just kind of alone. Yeah, yeah. There's bad people who live bad lives, and they just don't think anything yeah. of what they did. But they had a nice meal once. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was one time when they actually did really well at a meeting. Like, no, mm. it's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, the, the mayor showed up once. That was great. <laughs> that's their story. That that's it. Um, I, a Clockwork Orange. I feel like it wouldn't function if uh, Kubrick weren't wise enough to make Alex such a charmer. Mm. Uh, he's funny. Yeah, he's he's intelligent. He's yeah, he's, he's really he's smart. Not, he's, he's not evil because he's not like thoughtful or educated. Mm. He's evil because he is chosen to be. He he's not full of wrath. He is amoral. Yeah, he is a sociopath. The rules don't apply to him. Mm. And uh, I I think though this film is actually an analysis of the way uh, evil functions. And what we as a society need to do with it and yeah. how ultimately society is at a loss. It's yeah. not designed for evil, even though there are sociopaths Yeah, and we don't know how to accommodate a sociopaths. The plot of the movie uh, is uh, yeah. uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell plays Alex DeLarge, who is the leader of it's a near future situation. Society has collapsed a bit, but it's not like a dystopia per mm-hmm. se. It's just that things are kind of shitty. Uh, and um, he leads a small gang of violent monsters. There's a whole sequence, which is really hard to watch, where it's like a home invasion, and they yeah, attack yeah. this young couple, and there's sexual assault involved, and it's really... It's it's evil. It's supposed to be evil. It's not, like, mm. made to look cool, but... Um, anyway, Alex ends up uh, going to prison, 
And in order to get his way out of prison, he starts putting on his best behavior, mm-hmm. acting like he's really remorseful, just wants to get out of prison, yeah, doesn't a, care. A wonderful sequence where uh, in order to prove himself moral, he reads the Bible. Mm. And there's a sequence where uh, he likes the Bible because there's all this violence in it. Yeah. And nudity. Yeah, you know, like, all this violence and nudity. And he, he likes especially the Jesus story. And we get to see it in his head, the fantasy of him being the Roman soldier whipping Jesus. Uh-huh. Like, that's the role he's put himself in. But he signs up for... Uh, a new behavioral modification experiment which is designed to make evil people less evil but in order to do that it's aversion therapy it's we were going to show you all of these evil things we're going to pull your eyes open Mm -hmm. so you cannot shut them even if you want to and we're going to basically perform experiments on you so that when you think of this stimulus when you see these images when you feel compelled to do these horrible things or things that we have objectively decided are horrible uh, you will feel pain, mm. and you will not do them. Problem is, they scored the montage to Beethoven. So, in addition to ruining so, so, evil, yeah, they've also ruined the, art. The the Ninth Symphony, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, so now that they've also they've also ruined art, which is an interesting commentary on how yeah, if we start, who gets to decide what gets behaviorally modified out of you, and at what point is it a matter of taste, which is an interesting question. Mm. Um. Um, this is a vicious movie. It, it's a, yeah, it's a, a mean it, motion picture. It's really mean spirited. It's really yeah. difficult to watch, uh, and yet it is also incredibly thrilling, uh, mm-hmm. just from beginning to end. Uh, yeah, the characters are really cruel. The the soundtrack is really like it's electronic and off putting. Mm-hmm. It's Beethovenia. It's electronic classical music. It's really yeah. great, actually. I used to have the soundtrack listen to it a lot. No, it it sounds really great, but you know, yeah. at the same time, it it sounds really odd uh, given yeah. the way uh, a lot of movie scores were at the time. Oh yeah, this is this is like early seventies. That mm. kind of electronica kind mm. of thing that was really new. Actually. I think I think this was. One of the few film, I think it was the first film that was really uh, released in uh, like stereo. Oh, wait, really? Yeah, I think that uh, I think A Clockwork Orange had, uh, was one of the very first films to be released with like sort of more advanced sound systems. Oh, okay. Uh, I appreciate what K- Kubrick is doing here. He's accused mm. of being uh, very sort of cold and cynical. Um, and this film might be why, uh, because he was feeling very cynical at the time about a lot of where society was ha- headed. And he's, you know, of course, taking all of his cues from Anthony Burgess, who wrote the novel. And they're looking at juvenile delinquency and they're looking at society, especially England's uh, response to it. And the response was pop psychology. Mm. And this film is also incredibly uh, cynical about the way psychology functions and how it is not really designed in any kind of practical way to deal with society's ills. And it only has these new ways of talking about language and behavior and emotions and feelings Mm -hmm. in a way that's not useful to anybody. And I think that's nowadays, I think we could look at that and say that that was a knee jerk reaction. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily an an astute observation, but but I'm just saying that's one of the reasons why this movie didn't make my list is that I feel like some of it's some of its ideas about mm. uh, personal behavior, ideas about psychology, ideas about uh, sort of rehabilitation that come across as 
it's a response to early anxieties about these things, but maybe mm. they're not as relevant now as they oh, were at okay. the time. But I do I think th- they're fascinating to watch. I think they're incredibly relevant now, okay. especially if you start looking at the way psychiatry evolves. Mm-hmm. It's not a monolith. It changes right. over time. And the kind sure. of language we use and the way it is applied changes mm. over time. And the, the way uh, we focus on certain aspects of personality and emotional living and f- don't focus on others. Mm. And it's never been incredibly perfect and i think uh what kubrick is doing is kind of worming his way into the cracks he's showing that it is an imperfect system yeah and uh and i'm not saying that you know everyone should become cynical about psychiatry or psychology but uh we can also recognize that it is an imperfect practice Mm -hmm. and if it doesn't work for you then there are flaws in the system yeah uh, so it, at least it is offering a perspective on something that is vaunted as almost this holy writ mm. of uh, modern emotional, uh, like modern secular life. Yeah, fair enough. Mm. Uh, and actually, that's a really good segue to mm. uh, the next film on my list, um, which is also very much about mental health. Mm. Uh, it is a film from 2016 by Antonio Campos. It stars Rebecca Hall. Mm. And it is a lot of people. have I've recommended this movie since it came out. And it's maybe more than any other movie I've recommended. Mm. Uh, it's a movie that people usually come back to me and say, I'm, thank you for recommending this. I, I think it's a really important film. Uh, and it's weird because this movie wasn't like critically lost. I mean, it got good reviews, but it wasn't like Oscar nominated or anything like that. It kind of just fell through the cracks. Uh, but I want as many people to see it as can, even though it's really heavy. Um, it's called Christine. Uh, and it is the real life story of a news reporter named Christine Chebuk, uh, who... In a period where, you know, she, she was working as a news reporter on television, it was a difficult time, as it often is uh, in news reporting, where uh, ratings were starting to matter more than actual journalism, uh, where she was suffering from uh, sexism uh, in the workplace. That's no shock there. Uh, and also she had extreme mental health problems. Uh, if you know the story of Christine Chebuk, uh her story didn't end well. It actually ended in one of, like, I think the great tragedies in television history. Uh, but uh, Antonio Campos isn't necessarily interested in that. He's mm-hmm. not interested in a, in a single sensational act. He is interested in making sure that you understand whether you have any familiarity with the inner world or the inner uh, struggles that Christine Chubbuck specifically dealt with whether you actually sympathize or not this movie is designed to put you in her headspace so Mm -hmm. that you understand why for a moment what she did felt logical to her it didn't feel like it's something that was a delusion it felt like something that made sense Mm -hmm. and that's something that is incredibly harrowing about mental health issues and i've dealt with this myself uh where you you can't see your feelings or your interpretation of things as anything but true it's not just i'm having a bad day Mm. it's not just one perspective on things it is a logical to you uh uh, extrapolation off of what you're getting from other people what they say what they do the only logical interpretation in your head often when you're mentally ill can be intensely negative Mm-hmm. And there's this incredibly brilliant sequence in this movie where uh, Rebecca Hall is dragged by one of her coworkers 
and she thinks they're gonna have like actually like a nice night out she thinks maybe this is like this great personal connection that she needs to get her life in order and he's like maybe asking her out on a date or they're gonna be best friends and what he's actually taking her to is group therapy and she feels incredibly betrayed by this, but she goes for it. And they do an exercise. There's basically like, you sit down with one other person and you tell them your problems and they tell you, well, it's not so bad because. And she outlines all of her problems and the other person has nothing mm. because she actually has real problems. Yeah. They're not, they're not, the problems, how she's dealing with them and the severity of them uh, might, mm. n- might be affected by her mental health, but there's a practicality to her problems yeah. that is difficult to ignore. And as a result, she convinces herself that something really terrible is the thing to do mm. is the thing that makes sense to her. And it is absolutely horrifying, but it's real. It actually happened. Yeah, and it's incredibly humane about it, which is the thing that I think is most important here. And I think it's 90% of it is on Rebecca Hall giving an all time performance. One of my yeah, favorite movie it, performances ever. It, it's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I missed this when it first came out, and I, I ended up seeing it later. And yeah, the, this this film breaks the heart. Uh, it's 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 very frank about depression and mm-hmm. what depression looks and feels like on a practical level. Mm-hmm. Um, there are few filmmakers who are even brave enough to deal with it in any kind of uh, straightforward kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember seeing many many films throughout the the nineteen nineties that had uh, depressed characters in them and they were treated inelegantly or they were treated as comic foils in some way. Uh, And you know, they, they didn't quite understand what it was or if they did, they weren't bothering, bothering to put it in the movie. And there are a few filmmakers who say, no, this is what depression actually looks like and feels like. Um, there are filmmakers like Lars von Trier who want to grab you with hooks and pull you down into the muck Mm -hmm. with him. They're very confrontational about, about dealing with that and, kind of and, internal struggle, yeah. And part of being depressed is that sort of being confrontational, yeah. being angry, a, did deliberately alienating other people. Can be. Uh, pushing people away. That was a big part of melancholia. Mm. Uh, Christine takes a look at depression and uh, sees it just sort of on a workaday level. Mm. Yeah. What, it, what it looks like every day when you have a job and how 10,000 little indignities can compound a state of mind that you've fostered for yourself where there aren't solutions and you're just sort of being pushed further and further down the hole and when you get in that state of mind there isn't help anymore Mm. Uh, you say that you know her friends like sort of hoodwinked her and took her to group therapy and her friend took her to group therapy because she saw that she was suffering no no like she was he, actually he, there to help no no well he he was actually. or he was, he was yeah, sorry but like regardless so she was yeah, talking to another in, woman, in, so. in her head and that's the whole thing yeah. is this movie is you can see other people and how they respond to her and some people actually are reaching out to her some mm-hmm. people are being reasonable some people are being unreasonable but she isn't living in a vacuum she just feels like she is mm-hmm. and as a result she never reaches out like directly in a way that actually acknowledges that she has problems because that's the only sort of strength that she feels is in her workplace. She can be someone who solves problems and is a go-getter. Um, so yeah, she feels as though she's been betrayed because she was reading minds. She was like, I assume I know what was going through his head. And when it turns out, yeah, he actually did care about her. He cared about her enough to try to help. Mm. But at that point she wasn't in a place to be helped or she wasn't like, it, it wasn't what she needed that day, and it's that easy to miss that sometimes. Mm. It's so very, very tricky to deal with your own mm. depression and the mental health struggles of other people. You can mean absolutely wonderful yeah. things and do something completely wrong 
And I've been on both sides of that equation. Mm. And th- again, this is a movie where, again, I, w- I wouldn't do what Christine Chubbuck does. And I hope that no one else listening uh, would. But beyond that, this is a movie that made me feel incredibly seen. Mm. This is a movie like my lifelong struggle with depression and anxiety. Uh, this is a movie that made me go. I, Antonio Campos and Rebecca Hall thought about it. I don't know if how, what experience they have with it, but it feels like they get it. And they knew how to put it on screen in a way that I hope, and based on people recommended it to, near as I can tell, other people can get it too. And that's what's hard. Because so much of the struggle with mental health uh, issues is people who don't have the same issue not being able to understand exactly what you're going through. Mm. And it's easy to overlook or diminish or even ignore mm. or or resent even. Uh, and it takes a lot of sympathy to put it on screen this perfectly, I think. Mm. Uh, I love this movie. I think it's only going to go up in my estimation over time. Anyway, mm. um, moving on. Uh, well, I have a, a film on my list, uh, which is also about... A woman dealing with stress and anxiety uh, from five to seven. It's clear from five to seven. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there. Uh, we're gonna talk about this later. <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna talk about it now. We can talk about. Okay, fine. It's my number one. All right. Clear from five. <laughs> it's my number one. It's an excellent choice. Clear from five to yeah. seven uh, by Agnes Varda, uh, 1962 film, uh, part of uh, the French New Wave, uh, and. You know, French new neo feminism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, fashion, film styles, whatever. Uh, it's look, read a book. It's all in there. <laughs> read a book. Uh, it's 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 going to be put much more. <laughs> Stop listening than to our me. podcasts. No more podcasts for you. <laughs> Only books from now on. It, it's about a, a young woman named Cleo who uh, has just received a call from a doctor that a diagnosis is coming in a couple hours. She doesn't know what it's going to be. <laughs> And, yeah, it's, and but it yeah. could be really bad. It could be cancer. And she yeah. uh, is f- fearful for her life. She, uh, in fact, at the beginning of the movie, she's getting her tarot read. Yeah. And she uh, sees the death card and she real and uh, the tarot reader says something about like an evil doctor in her life. Yeah. And she knows this this diagnosis is coming throughout the rest of the movie. And it's about this very brief span of time from five to seven where she doesn't know, she's just like thrown into this existential crisis. She yeah. doesn't know what her health is. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know if she's going to live or die. And she's young. This is like the yeah. first time she's ever really dwelled on these yeah, thoughts. She, she's probably. like in her early 20s. So yeah. yeah, mortality is not something she's considered before. Mm-hmm. Her 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 mm-hmm. her beauty and her youth are commodified. She's making a living at it. She's, uh, she's a singer. She's mm-hmm. an entertainer. Uh, men respond to her romantically, sexually. Uh, and all of a sudden she is vulnerable and perhaps not long for this mm. world. And the movie takes place from five to seven. It's mm. just two hours of her life. It's not a two-hour film. It's not quite real time. It's, it's 90 yeah. minutes, actually, which I think is actually a great way to do it. Um, <laughs> because otherwise you don't, you don't want to make it feel padding, like it's a gimmick. It just feels very, very natural. And it's her walking around town. This movie has a great sense of presence mm. of of where you are right now in this moment being everywhere because to her it is at the moment she's very focused on the now uh, and worried about the future but she's trying to focus on the now in order to get through the next couple of hours before she gets her diagnosis and varda has a really uncanny knack for capturing just the streets of france mm. 
just the bustling, the 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 crowds, the little looks from people all around. Uh, it feels incredibly. It, it, it feels like a documentary. It feels yeah, like we're just there. It doesn't feel staged at all. It's really uncanny. But then Varda will occasionally crack out something that's like really filmic and artificial yeah. that, that feels really striking. Yeah, it'll cut to color all mm. of a sudden really dramatically. It's mostly a black and white film mm. or there'll be some kind of cinematic moment that feels like it comes right out of a dream or a mm. reverie. Um, and and I, th- I think it really captures that... Uh, psychological realness of being in those moments where your mind does drift and wander and you perceive the world differently from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. And Agnes Varda is not being inconsistent with it. She's very savvily weaving all of these different feelings together in this broader tapestry of stress and anxiety that this woman Mm -hmm. is living through. Uh, I feel like she was making a comment on, uh, A, the way women are treated in French New Wave films. Yep. Because a lot of the French New Wave was taking their cues from uh, sexist Hollywood films from the 1940s. Yeah, look at look at what Jean-Luc Godard in particular was doing early in his career with something like Breathless. Yeah. It's about macho style. Mm. And a lot of the other, uh, I haven't seen every single French New Wave film, but a lot of the other French New Wave films were very specifically about male experiences. Mm. And Varda's film really just stands completely in, confront- in confrontation with that. Yeah, well, um, uh, Godard followed it up with a Vive Sa Vie, but yeah, mm. there, there's kind of... I'm, a, not saying, I'm not saying it's alone, yeah, but which, like which it's a lot starred of Anna Karina, yeah. she was the main character in that one. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, but what's... Uh, in making the main character a sort of a model and a singer, this sort of pop star, this glittering uh, mm. kind of uh, pop culture figure... Mm. Uh, Agnes Varda was sort of pointing out that in objectifying a woman, you're actually kind of not putting her in the world anymore. We're kind yeah. of pushing her out in a yeah, lot we're, of Yeah, we're denying her her humanity. Yeah, yeah, you're turning her into an object. And uh, yeah. that's something that the, this main character is dealing with. It's something that uh, Agnes Varda is criticizing. Mm. What I love about this, like the French New Wave gets a lot of press, but one of the things I like about it is that it was critical of itself as it was going. Yeah, this is the French New Wave mm. was led by film critics who decided to start making mm. movies, mostly low-budget uh, dramas and some comedies and thrillers. Mm. But uh, And they were making movies that were very much, whether they were directly saying it, which they often were, uh, or not, but were an actual comment on the kinds of movies they were seeing and trying to make the kinds of movies they weren't seeing. Mm. And they were responding to each other's films. It's a really interesting conversation to have. If you can, like sit down and like mainline the French new wave in like even semi chronological order. You're going to see a very interesting perspective on it. I I recommend this. Don't start with breathless. Start with Paris belongs to us. Then you can go wherever you like. (laughs) Start with Paris belongs to us. Then see the 400 blows. Okay. Then see breathless. Okay. Don't start with Godard. He'll push you right out. Okay. And then, and then of course, you got to see Cleo from five to seven somewhere yeah. in there because that's one of the best yeah. ones. I uh, consider this one of my, this is one of one of my picks for one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I really do. I'm deeply in love with this movie. Ever, I have been ever since film school. Um, there's a sense of incredible profundity to Agnes Varda's immediacy. And I think that's something that's hard to do. I think when we think about movies, that feel very immediate that we're very in the present. It feels often feels very much about action. Mm-hmm. It feels very much about experience. And yet here, the action, the experience, the immediate, the now is introspective, which makes it both dynamic and thoughtful. It makes it both visually stimulating, yet very still. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an incredibly just wonderful, just hurricane in a bottle. 
yeah, of a movie. Yeah. And uh, it's got a wonderful ending. It's got a great performance. Uh, I, I, I love this movie a lot, and I hope people see it. Uh, definitely, it's on the Criterion Channel. Yeah, you, you can. Do, it's ninety minutes. Stop yeah. the show and watch it. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's yeah. it's a really fast watch. It's a lot. It's it's yeah. funny. It's romantic. It's sad. It's potent. Yeah. It's, it's everything. It's a. It's one of those movies that just gives you a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's and, so good. And, and I'll say this: you, you sit down, you watch Godard. It, a, it, it feels like homework, and B, when you're watching, it feels like homework. <laughs> like, you, you have to know a lot about, like, what he's talking about oh, and what God. he's commenting on. And, well, if you know more about what Agnes Varda was talking about, it does make the film a lot more intriguing. Sure. You can uh, see there, things you might have you know, missed, yeah. Politics about the Algerian war is fil- fo- yeah. uh, folded in there, and there's, you know, an Algerian soldier, a French soldier who just came in from uh, from Algeria as one of the characters. But you can go into Cleo from but, the yeah, seven knowing nothing. If, if you don't know any of that, and yeah. you don't know about the French New Wave, you can still get deep into the heart of Cleo from yeah. five to seven because think, it is very human and very humane. I actually think this is, even though it's designed in some respects to be a counterpoint, mm. I think this is actually be a really good introduction to the French New Wave okay. on itself. I think it is it's still the kind of movie that we're not seeing movies like this right now. Mm. Like, I'm not saying no one's made anything kind of like it, but like it's not like it's a cliche now. Like, it still feels very different. It yeah. still feels very distinct. Um, and there I think are, it's there are satirists making fun of this one. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it it hasn't fallen into the realm of cliche, and uh, as a result, I think it still feels like a discovery the first time you watch it. Mm. Um, and so I think you're gonna watch this movie if you haven't seen this a lot of French Other Waves films, and you're gonna say to yourself, "Wow, are they all like this?" And you're gonna be like, "Kind of." Most of like, them, yeah. a lot of them have this incredible energy where it's like we are desperate to make cinema that is not like what we're getting right now. And, and that's because <laughs> and because the cinema that they were trying to make uh, uh uh because the cinema that they were trying to rebuff was very mainstream and the mainstream may have like switched popular genres but is still similar. Like they're still directly related to one another, the blockbusters of today and the past. Uh I think they still connect. Mm. Some more than others, I think some, and some of them are better than others. But uh, yeah, uh, so, so I, I have four films left. I, I have three okay. because you 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 took my Cleo. <laughs> uh, it's okay. T- it's, she's not my Cleo. She's I everyone's know. Cleo. You know what I mean. You took my yeah. you took my number one pick. Right. I didn't mean to be possessive. I just meant you took my number one pick. Uh, what? Okay. So what? I guess give me give me your number right. three. Um. This one's for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, I. I'm, I'm trying to imagine. Hold on. I'm trying to imagine. Like some just well, really, this is really a, artsy fartsy film. This is a cinema classic, but it is a really artsy fartsy film. It's also a short, uh, so I, I hope uh, you'll let me have it. Uh, well, it is, yeah, we've already established you can have a short, and uh, and I'm also using the French title because that's the way it's best known. It's Un Chien Andalou. Uh, and okay, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I, it's, yeah, this is totally fine. Un Chien Andalou yeah. is uh, a, a, a surrealist short film. It was directed by Luis Buñuel and Salvador Dali. Oh yeah, huge collaboration. Uh, back in 1929, and uh, they were trying to get riots started. Mm-hmm. They were trying to outrage audiences. Uh, I wish films still had that power mm. to upset the hoi polloi so much that you could actually start a riot. Mm. Maybe they still can. Maybe we just need much well, more I mean, daring voices. Hold on, hold on. Mm. Yes, it's called the news. Mm. If you've been around, well, you yeah. see that people can be upset by the images that they see. Yeah, now, yeah. granted, this is this is a surrealist work that's, of fiction. That's but, news. I was about to say it's not art. But that's different. Regardless, my point is this: you can see 
how new pieces of information or new films or new developments uh, can stir people up to this day. I think the power is still there, mm. but it's been a while since a movie that was trying to be that... Uh, mm. uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Try, trying to light that fire. Mm. Uh, got the the distribution yeah, that uh, it would take to no, start a major like a major upswell like that today. It, it does still occasionally happen. Look at look at Lil Nas X. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Lil like, Nas X. Just, a lot of people uh, just put, put out that out. song. Call me by your name in the music video. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people freaked out at the music video. It is so harmless. It it's is really. It's, like, it's really tame. Actually, I, it's, uh, it's obviously it's subversive for religion, but uh, but it's kind of. But in, simplistic in, in, yeah, it. So. I, I, it's it's yeah. critical of religion in a really common sort of way. Yeah, uh, like the uh, idea that oh, religion is sexy. Yeah, uh, we've been doing that since the silent era of cinema. <laughs> like that's not new. Madonna made this. I thought Madonna made this made this like mm. tame decades ago. Like people freaked out, and then nobody like yeah. no, and then everyone just sort of went on about their business no like, 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 is pole dancing into hell and gives a lap dance yeah. to satan it's like oh i've seen it yeah I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself ah yeah. sexy like, that's it that's all yeah, i got yeah. and, and last year it was it was wap yeah <laughs> it's like oh my goodness my yeah. i loved when that kind of response gets it's like these these two hot women sing about having sex and it's sexy and they just talk about sex and sexy things and how great sex is mm-hmm. and monocles still pop. Like, yeah. First of all, have you heard WAP? It's funny. It's a, it's a great it's song. It's actually really catchy. I, I don't see how you could be upset at something as kind of playful as WAP. <laughs> no, it's just, it is very much, you know, what's great. My sexuality. And I'll be like, sure. But yeah, have at it. Knock yourself out. Enjoy that. It's great. Megan the Stallion and Cardi B go. Lil Nas yeah. X go. Why are we even having this conversation? Yeah. It's absurd. Uh, Unshend Andalou was the uh, was, was the call was the call name. name of its time. <laughs> you know uh, what? It's a little thin. No, but it's if incredibly it, if thin. It helps, actually, if it helps people, uh, if it helps people get some sense of what this thing would have been like, what a, yeah. what a firebrand this was when it came out. Yeah, Fair I, enough. It, it's difficult to surmise because you can't really give a, a synopsis of something like uh, Unshan Andalou. You can just sort of describe what happens in it because it's surrealism. There's uh, priests being dragged along the street. There's mm-hmm. a fellow with a stigmata-like wound in his hand that ants crawl out of. Uh, the film very famously opens with it's like a, a barber with a straight razor uh, uh, sharpening the razor on a strop and slicing open a woman's eyeball while she sits there completely unprotesting and doesn't react to that at all. Uh, a, a lot of surreal uh, religious iconography, a lot of uh, violent imagery, just things that don't seem to connect to one another. Time passes in a really weird sort of way. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the short is, is, it's a short, it's like 20-something minutes. Uh, 21. 21 minutes. 21 minutes. Uh, yeah, stop. Watch, yeah. watch Unchandelu. It's on Tubi. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this is another one. This is another one where it's if if you you can watch this on its own and be kind of stunned by it just because it is kind of a work of pure inspiration. That's how they made it. Hmm. They both came up with images, and if they both liked them, they did it. And that if one of them bu- didn't, they Bunuel, didn't. Bunuel and Dolly. Yeah, was, like yeah. it was like, oh, I have this idea for an image. The other one, great, let's do that. And the other one went, no. Then they didn't do that. Hmm. All they had to do was like agree on it and then not explain it. It had yeah. to be irrational. And, and b- both Bunuel, uh Bunuel and Dolly, but Bunuel much 
more stridently so uh, were trying to make political points with their art. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's what was, I was about yeah, to get into. Like, yeah, if you Bunuel know, was very critical of of class in in Europe at yeah. the time, and uh, all most all of his films are uh, these broad condemnations of government and yeah. the wealthy, well, and also other people. Like, I remember reading somewhere a long time ago that like uh, this movie was kind of seen as a direct slap in the face to Federico Garcia Lorca. Mm. You know, uh, so like if you understand some of the context of this stuff, it's like it's kind of like if you understand. Like, I imagine, like, reading Dante's Inferno when it came out was probably full of all of these, like, really amazing topical references. It was probably like watching Family Guy. Like, all of a sudden, like, oh, my God. Oh, I understand who that is. Like, you know what? You're just no, 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 no. I mean, I, mean I, I know. I know. I know. You know what I mean. I'm not talking about content or substance. I'm talking about name dropping. That's all I'm talking about. Donnie's Inferno is full of popular culture uh, name-dropping of stuff that isn't popular culture anymore. And I went into hell with Aeneas. (laughs) (laughs) uh, We were watching some old episodes of The Nanny, Uh just as sort sort of a dessert for the mind. And every once in a while, they would reference something, and I was like, and they would... There were just people walking around like, oh, yeah, we're going to go shopping. And uh, I don't know. I, fr- I can't remember what the joke was. But it was like, we're going to go shopping and do a thing. And then, like, the son in this sitcom starring Fran Drescher said, oh, yeah, like Ross Perot. And I'm like, oh, yeah. What did Ross Perot do that week? Like, I don't. <laughs> I remember Ross Perot. I don't know what you're talking about anymore. Like, I don't understand, like, the specificity of that gag. So these things become lost to time pretty quick. So if there were things in Unchained Andalou that are topical, there may you may miss them unless you do a little ancillary yeah, research. And, and um, a, a lot of people call surrealism a, a pretentious art form. Uh, hell's to the yeah. Uh, it's it, <laughs> it actually benefits from a lot of research and knowing a lot of the context yeah. of where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, some. Uh, it can only so not make function, sense if yeah, there's something to make sense yeah, to compare the, it to. The, the you know? function of surrealism is a matter of debate whether or not uh, things can be directly one to one symbolic. Here's the symbolic thing that represents yeah. this actual political figure. Uh, some people say that's not surrealism; that's just symbolic art, mm-hmm. and you can actually you know split hairs over the definitions of these things all day if you want to. I, and I think um, it's just splitting hairs, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it is. But it's fun to have these different debates, especially sure about art uh, yeah. and. Whereas uh, some of the founders of surrealism wanted to sort of divorce it from meaning. They wanted it to be like more pure psychology. And if, if it had a meaning, then it's not surrealism anymore. Uh, you read like some of the treatises of mani- uh, the manifestos of surrealism by like Tristan Sara and Andre Breton and some of the actual important early figures in the, the surrealist movement. Yeah, you know, light I, reading like you like you do in before bed. I did a lot of study on this in college, so I can I can I can drop <laughs> I just, these names. I, I don't mind uh, I don't mind you referencing the books. I want people to read the books. I love it when you re- when you drop those names casually, like <laughs> you know, like tr- well, you know, like like there, you do. There are probably people listening about uh, listening to me talk about this who know a lot more about it than I do. Well, that's true. So I don't want to be and presumptuous and say I'm an expert. I never want to condescend yeah. to our listeners. I just want, listeners, I mean this. Like mm. I never want to assume that you haven't read anything or that you haven't seen something. But I also know that the purpose of a lot of film criticism and art criticism is to raise awareness of stuff you might not know about. Yeah. So I never want to assume that you have either. Right. Some of the, f- yeah. the the founders of the surrealist movement, like they were actually very actively trying to create a new artistic movement. It wasn't yeah. something that kind of evolved naturally. They it was were, like Dogma 95. Yeah, it was a conscious, this, conscious yeah. effort. And some of the early uh, yeah. uh, 
artists of this period were Andre Breton and Tristan Sara. They were actually writing manifestos about what surrealism ought to look like. Mm. Uh, read Andre Breton's uh, book, A Manifesto of Surrealism, mm. where it's all laid out. He also wrote a, a book which is sort of a novel, I guess, uh, but you know, its format is difficult to pin down. Uh, called Mad Love. Uh, I recommend oh, yeah. Andre Breton's Mad Love. I yeah. read that in college, and it, and it blew my mind. Uh, and yeah, they, they were laying out what surrealism ought to be. Uh, Dali was working in surrealism as a painter for the longest time, and he had decided to break into filmmaking. This was uh, the film he directed with uh, Louis Bunuel, who would go on to direct a lot of other equally like vague surrealist uh, political films about class uh, exterminating yeah. angel is really good. And the discreet term of the bourgeoisie is one of my favorite movies. That's a great movie. Um, but, great movie. Uh, no arguing out. Uh, but yeah, Unshen Andalou is uh, bracing, striking. It's a dream. Yeah. Uh, it's really fun to try to synopsize because yeah. it, you are just fine. You find yourself describing yeah. stuff. It's, after it's a while. You, you might think to yourself that because it's a really, really, really old movie that it's going to mm. be pretty tame. There's actually some shocking bits in it. Oh, absolutely. Like there's, 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 there's a bit of, there's, there's a violence, bit of, there's nudity. There's, there's, a, yeah. there's physical violence in it and it's faked, but it's faked in a way that's also real. So mm. uh, I just be aware. You might, you might go, Yeah. Mm. Like, you might be surprised by a thing. I don't want to ruin it for you in case you, that surprise is worth it for you. But if you're a little concerned about violence, I'm going to do a little reading up on it ahead of time, I guess. What was the title of that film? There was an animated film that came out just two years ago about Louis Bunuel. Oh, it was, yeah! It was called, it was called, was I think it was called Louis Bunuel in the Land of the Blue Turtles. Something and, like uh, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, if I remember it correctly. I'll, and, I'll look and it up. And it, it was about the making of uh, some of his early, an early documentary short that uh, Louis Bunuel made called Land Without Bread. And how he wanted to capture real poverty, but he was like such an upstart. He ended up just pissing off everybody in this town. Uh, every everything in the the documentary mm. was staged. It's called Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. The Labyrinth of the Turtles. He was so me. close. Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. It's it's based on his making of the film Land Without Bread. So uh, you kind of you kind of portmanteau them. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, and there there's a bit in that where. Um, he wanted to show just what life was, what life was like and how they ate and the, how they lived with animals and how they would slaughter chickens occasionally. And so he wanted to get footage of somebody slaughtering a chicken. So he asked a guy to kill a chicken on camera. Yeah. There's a, a really great dramatization where uh, a guy goes over to uh, one of the film crew goes over to one of the, the natives of the town and says, Hey, uh, w we need a favor. We need you to, to you know, kill. And he kind of like jerks his thumb over. And this, this old native like looks over at these like three filmmakers holding a chicken says, which one? <laughs> that was really great. Bunuel was an upstart. He was a dick. And that reads in his films. And I love that kind of impish punk rock sensibility that he's bringing to 1920s cinema. He's really shaking it up. And he succeeded. Yeah. It really pisses me off when somebody sets out to make a new artistic movement and they do it. <laughs> You don't just do that. Oh, wait, you can. It happens. Yeah. You go out to change the world, and you do. Yeah. It's actually quite it's, inspiring. It's, it's inspiring, but it also sets the bar a little high. Mm -hmm. So, remember, don't always judge yourself by the people who were, like, weirdly successful. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. it's impressive. I'm going to you... live my life by poetry. You can't do that. Oh, actually, oh, you can. No, okay. you're a successful poet. Okay, but the vast majority of us cannot. And they're like, yeah. okay, fine. Anyway, um... <laughs> Well, moving on, and uh, I wanted that, that's that's an okay segue uh, mm. to a film that is very much about the power of symbology. Okay, and is very much about the power of storytelling, uh, and a very much a uh, social commentary therein. And it is 
Bernard Rose's Candyman. Oh, this almost made it onto my list. Candyman yeah. is a horror movie that just keeps going up in my estimation every <laughs> single time I fucking watch it. I started off thinking it was merely a scary film, but I saw it when I was like 12. Or like whenever it came out. It's like 91, yeah. 92 around yeah. there. And, yeah. and as a purely surface level horror movie, it's great. It's really fucked up. Uh, it's about an urban legend. Uh, a man called the Candyman who uh, has a big hook for a hand. And if you say his name uh, five times in front of a mirror, he will show up and kill you. Specifically in the housing projects of Cabrini Green in, yeah. in Chicago. Uh, Cabr- Chicago. Yeah. Is Cabrini Green in Chicago? Yeah. Okay. I thought I knew, and now, now you're now yeah. you made a question. You're in charge of looking that up all the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, Virginia Madsen plays a college student who is uh, investigating urban legends, mm-hmm. and she wants to write a paper on the on the subject. Uh, and yeah, she starts Chicago has That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she's she's investigating the history of the Candyman, and what she discovers is that the Candyman myth, as it has become popularized in the present day, may actually have a relatively straightforward, uh, even banal explanation. And then the actual Candyman shows up and is mad that he ru- that she ruined his story. Candyman is played by Tony Todd. Tony Todd is a very, very tall, very elegantly voiced actor who has such incredible presence, just in general. Hmm. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that he rarely got a chance to really shine. And I think Candyman is one of the all-time like great Tony Todd performances. Um, he he, uh, he got a, a role on Star Trek. He was Worf's brother. Yeah, no, he's yeah. great in that. Don't get me wrong; like, he's he's wonderful in everything. Yeah. But he's one of those great character actors who I just feel like, man, you know, with the right role, he could have gotten an Oscar somewhere. You know, mm. like he just he never quite got that role. Yeah, and um, he still might. He's you know he's still he's still with us, thank goodness. But like, regardless, Candyman is probably his most iconic performance, and it's he's terrifying. He's absolutely terrifying, but he's also right. And that's the thing that's beautiful about Candyman. It's a horror story about a monster who was wronged. And the more we learn about his story, the more you realize that he's the true victim of history and that the urban legend that vilifies him is also his revenge on the world. Hmm. It's also his ability to stay alive and relevant Hmm. and that by overanalyzing and criticizing it, you have the potential to destroy a story unless you find a way to give that story new life again. It's it's also not insignificant that the uh, that Virginia Madsen is white. Yeah, <laughs> and a she, white woman just a white, ruined a white woman who is going into a predominantly black neighborhood uh-huh. and going for their story, objectifying a group of people. Yeah, uh, it it she's intellectualizing it, but that's a form of racism, and yeah. it's it's actually really telling that but she's are, she's ignoring the actual yeah. power of the thing. Mm. Yeah. In terms of just like and, saying, yeah, here's, what, this, here's this what you're missing. And, and the reason she's so cavalier is because of her, because of her white privilege. Yeah, and uh, and they're, they're actually a big part of this movie is pointing that privilege out to her and how yeah. she, th- this is not your world. You are dismissing us. Mm-hmm. You get you get to be a victim of this now. Yeah, a lot of great horror movies are just mm-hmm. scary, and maybe mm-hmm. they have an underlying theme, but the theme isn't necessarily explored very well. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the great horror films that does actually. Yeah, they're, they're great horror movies about nothing. Or like, or next, or like, you know, or they're just trying to connect on some primal level and they're not really, but they're not really, again, they're not exploring their themes. Army of Darkness is about nothing. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a a joke. I I would argue that Army of Darkness is more of a horror comedy than a horror Uh, movie. I don't think it's actually trying to scare us. It's it's more a spoof than anything. But we could argue that something like the Evil Dead movies Hmm. aren't really about anything very deep i'd say they're they're 
a genre analysis, if you That's will. exactly yeah. my point. I think they're about horror filmmaking. Yeah. More than anything else, and but although they're really fascinating on that level, and they're defying our expectations of what horror can be, can look like, can be the way the stories can be told. Ultimately, they're not exploring any thoughtful ideas in depth. They're not mm-hmm. like having a meaningful conversation with or in front of the audience. And I feel like Candyman is one of the great horror movies because, in addition to being a really scary movie about a really scary monster and this woman who basically invites all of this horror upon herself. Mm. Um, It's also smart. It's also thoughtful. It's wise. Mm. I think Um, I really love this movie. And uh, again, I just, every time I talk about it, every time I I hear about it, I'm reminded that this is, I think one of the greats. So there you go. Mm. Uh, Okay. I got, it is is really great. Uh, It's, they're making a fourth. They make two sequels. Yeah. they made one almost like a few years after the first Candyman. Yeah. That was a theatrical release. Then they did a straight-to-video sequel, which is abysmal. Yeah, the, the, uh, the theatrical sequel is not particularly good, but it's watchable. It's, it's, it's fine enough. Yeah, yeah but it doesn't, the, doesn't go into Candyman Three stinks. Yeah, it's and, a uh, bad movie. And there's a fourth Candyman, which is just called Candyman. It's a yeah. direct sequel because they reference yeah. the other characters from the other movies. Yeah, but, um, it was supposed to come out last year, but with the pandemic, pandemic got, it was I'm, pushed I'm, back. I'm excited so to people, say it. People have been good. Uh, uh, really looking forward to this this yeah. fourth film. The, t- the trailer um, looked looked intriguing, so I hope they they follow through. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a little hesitant because, sure. um, but remakes can be good. I like the remake of Suspiria. Well, um, again, not a remake. Sequels can also be good. That's true. Like, Sequels can be good. Yeah, so, uh, never assume. Mm-hmm. Just gotta like, oh, okay, this is coming out. Yeah. Maybe maybe the trailer maybe intrigues you. Maybe yeah. it doesn't, but you have to keep an open mind. Yeah, I have, and I have to wait maybe to, it'll be amazing. I hope I, it is. I will see it. I'll talk about it, and I'll, I'll see how how amazing it is. Okay. What's going next? Um, how about Chimes at Midnight? Let's talk about Chimes I, at Midnight. That, that's one of my other ones, too. Oh, right, great. Uh, I'm just tearing through these. I'm, I'm glad we have so many in common. Me, too. We usually we don't, yeah. which is pretty weird. That's true. We don't yeah. have this much overlap. Uh, yeah. Chimes at Midnight was a film that Orson Welles made about Falstaff, the character from uh, three of Shakespeare's plays. Uh, Falstaff was in uh, Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part II. Uh, he he dies off stage uh, before the beginning of Henry V, so he's mm-hmm. not technically in that one. He was also in a, his own comedy film called The Merry Wives of Windsor. Yeah. Uh, he made it in the 60s. This was considered sort of on the... I guess after Citizen Kane, everything was sort of the downward slope for Orson Welles. He has a really very strange career trajectory. That, that Yeah, he, uh, he started off getting everything. He yeah. got uh, director's cut, he got absolute creative control, uh, and he made, again, arguably the best movie ever made. Mm. And then because he was kind of an asshole about it, and because he made a movie that was specifically designed to piss off one of the most powerful people in the world, mm. the movie tanked. The movie uh, it won an Academy Award, but it wasn't super popular, and it wouldn't even become truly critically acclaimed for like another 10 years. And so Hollywood was like, well, he doesn't make money, and... It's not that popular in the critically either, so we just don't trust him anymore. And so they started like re-editing his movies without his say so, and then he started started getting harder for him to get any movies made at all. And he had to start making movies independently, and some of them got made, some of them never got finished in, in his lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. And he, in that time, he still made some truly amazing mm-hmm. motion pictures. 
And uh, let's pause here. Uh, go to Netflix. Watch The Other Side of the Wind. Yes. Why didn't we talk about that more? I don't this, understand. This, um, like That's... this long, lo- long <coughs> lost, incredibly notorious, yeah. unfinished Orson yeah. Welles project. He like finished all of it except for like two shots. Like yeah. that's it. It was a basically finished, complete Orson Welles movie and... He like bequeathed it uh, to his yeah, Peter his, Peter Bogdanovich, wasn't it? No, it was Oya Kodar. Oh, right, but right, Peter right. Bogdanovich said he was going to finish it. Hmm. Um, and uh, the whole thing is finished after I'm dead. Like I tried to, the rights got all fucked up. Please finish it after I'm dead, and they did. And uh, people people thought that they were never going to see it for hmm. decades, and then they finally put it out. Crickets. What the fuck? It's amazing. It's not it's only all, is it amazing that it exists. It's actually genuinely amazingly good. I'll, I'll quote um, uh, Chuck Klosterman uh, reviewed um, Chinese Democracy, the, yeah. the thirteen years in the making Guns and Rosen record, and he said uh, it, in his review, reviewing this record is like reviewing a unicorn. It's like. <laughs> Sure, you can probably find things to criticize about it, but shouldn't we just be astonished that it exists at all? Yeah, but in this case, I don't have to be. I can actually just be impressed by how good The Other Side of the Wind is. And indeed, a lot of Orson Welles' other movies are genuine classics, even if they did get mangled. Touch of Evil is that great. The F for Fake is astounding. And I would argue that when all is said and done, his second best film is Chimes of Midnight. Oh, I remember you and I got to see Chimes at Midnight on the oh big God. screen. They they oh. uh, they re-released it very briefly. New Year's uh, Weekend. It was yeah, like the it was, first it was movie to come the out. First movie to come out, and uh, <laughs> it was really fun for because like for like four days yeah. at the beginning of January, it was the top-grossing film of the year. <laughs> so let's just pause right here. Or chi- the re-release of Chimes at Midnight is the highest-grossing film of that year. Um, yeah, Chimes at Midnight was uh, it's it's all Shakespeare's language, but it's reworked and re-edited and written into a single story about Falstaff. Yeah, Falstaff is a recurring character mm. who appeared in uh, I think four. Is it four Shakespeare plays or three? I, I said what they were, the three. Okay, it was three. Yeah. Okay, I I, I I lost count. Okay, <laughs> uh, but he appeared in multiple plays, and uh, Orson Welles had the rather clever idea that you know none of those are his story. But if you take only his scenes from all three plays and put them in, in chronological order, it plays like it is his story. Mm. And now all of a sudden, hidden within these other three Shakespeare stories, we have a brand new Shakespeare play. And it's all about Falstaff. Mm. And he plays Falstaff, and it's amazing. Mm. And and you get... Um... Falstaff is, uh, he's a drunk. He's a drunkard, and uh, his function in Henry IV Part One is he's the bad influence on the young prince. Mm. Prince Hal is going to be Henry V at, yeah. uh, later on. He spends most of the and, time uh, uh, drinking and justifying his life of laziness and debauchery and cowardice. Yeah, and, and he has a lot of a lot of speeches about how great it is to be drunk all the time. Yeah. If I were to raise a child, I'd give him sherry first thing. You know, the, yeah. and this is this is the right way to live, is to be a drunken coward. He's Baloo the Bear. He's Bully, yeah. Well, Bully the Bear has, yeah, a, a, has trace, a trace of the Falstaff in him. Yeah. But he also he's, has. He's very lovable, but also not a good influence. He also understands, uh, especially at the end of uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One, when he's told off yeah. by, Hal, by Prince Hal, yeah. that he realizes he actually doesn't have much of a life. Yeah. That th- these friendships around him are incredibly artificial. So he's an incredibly tragic figure as well. Yeah. And he does realize that. He realizes that. His life of empty debauchery 
is also a life of empty debauchery. Yeah, and ultimately and, the emptiness so, is what defines him, not the debauchery. Orson Welles saw that. He yeah. saw that this character is incredibly fun, he's incredibly funny, you want to hang out with Falstaff, but you don't want to live with Falstaff. No. Because he's not going to be your good friend. He's not going to stick by you. He's just going to be the guy who gets you... He was the original party boy, mm-hmm. <laughs> Falstaff. <laughs> but it's about what happens when the party boy gets to be in his 60s and is dying. Mm. It's, it's you know he's also has the uh, he's kind of a pathetic figure as well and sure, uh, Shakespeare wrote that into all of the scripts but Orson Welles brought all of that together and presented it almost like a lecture in Chimes at Midnight and stringing them all together and constructing a whole character yeah. and as I think that sort of view of Falstaff started to leak into a lot of critical discourse about the character. And you'll find a lot of essays about how Falstaff is now a far more important figure in the canon of Shakespeare than just a really good comedic sidekick character. He actually is maybe one of the defining characters in the Shakespearean canon and by extension, perhaps all of Western literature. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's intellectual, and it is in, incredibly sad. And your your heart is going to ache for Falstaff. And you know he's going to end badly, but you still love him and you still want to be with him. Yeah. And, well, and, that's, and that's what makes a great tragedy, Orson, isn't and, it? And Orson Welles yeah. plays every single element I, I, of that simultaneously. It's not a tragedy if it's just a bad person who gets their comeuppance. That's, no. that's, 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 just, that's just justice. That's mm. not really tragedy. Tragedy is... Oh, I, I really hope that this time I read the book, it would end differently mm-hmm. because you get so wrapped up in them and you care about them. And that's true for Falstaff. And I think that's what makes Falstaff so great is that he's so vividly realized mm-hmm. that even though, you know, he's a cad, you still like well, Falstaff. I hope one day you learn <laughs> and he never will. No, never will. Felt his feet and they were cold as any stone. All right. Uh, well, you have two more and I have one more. So why don't you take one more? All right. Um, if this is the other one on my list, I'm going to be just laughing. No, because I know you're not a Bergman fan. Okay, uh, the, yeah. Okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Cries and Whispers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Cries and Whispers is a brilliant work of art. Yeah. You're rolling your eyes all I'm going to throw this out whispers. there. Hold on. Uh, Ingrid Bergman, if you're so great, why do you need Cries and Whispers? <laughs> Pick a lane, Bergman. Seventh Seal? You couldn't do it with the first one? <laughs> Why'd you need so many tries, Bergman? <laughs> Fanny and Alexander in this economy. <laughs> oh, okay, that one got me. That one got me. That was good. Cries and Whispers came out in the seventies. It is one of the most exquisitely photographed films ever. Sven Nickvist is one of the best cinematographers ever. Ingmar Bergman is one of the best filmmakers ever. I'm not exaggerating. These are all true. If they have a, a Nobel Prize for filmmaking, Bergman would be on the shortlist. Uh, and, he, uh, and he'd be on the shortlist because he is interested in nothing less than the fabric of the human soul. Uh, he uh, is interested in big questions and how they relate to us practically. Mm. He is interested in uh, issues of faith, of faithlessness, of betrayal, of the things in our heart that harden us and also make us great and how those things can simul- can coexist within the same heart. Mm. Uh, Cries and Whispers is an incredibly stylized movie. Uh, all of the interiors are very red. You're walking around inside human blood. And uh, it's about, it's the story of three sister, uh, 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 sisters who are, uh, one of them is dying mm. and how the other sisters have to uh, sort of... Uh, 
deal with that and how the death of their sister, the good one, the good, the kind hearted one yeah. uh, is reflecting very poorly on the actions of the other sisters, Right. how they are realizing just how tortured their lives are. Uh, and of course it's also on a very practical level. It's about the story of uh, dealing with a death in the family. And watching somebody you love and somebody you've lived with your whole life slowly waste away. And how painful that is and how difficult it is. And how you take that pain and you apply it to other aspects of your life and do other do harm to other people because of your own personal pain. That's a big part of this movie. Uh, it's also about how that kind of pain you're now currently inflicting starts casting itself backward through your life and starts to... Uh, reveal to you a lot of your own personal weaknesses and you start putting yourself out there and it's just exposing you to be not, not a, not a bad person, but a a person who is certainly capable of being a bad person. It doesn't look away from anything yeah. there. There's, there's blood in this movie and there's violence in this movie. It's, it's not, uh, you mm. know, pervasive, but there's a few acts of pretty extreme gruesome things mm. that are going to be kind of hard to watch. Mm. Uh, what, why but, do you think they're crying? cries and whispers they're they're yeah. crying and they're whispering and it, it's 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 a very it's a very dour film but it's also very exhilarating mm. uh in terms of how unflinchingly it looks at these weird ambivalences of these characters uh and and bergman who is uh by this at this point in his career is i guess he already did work in sort of this fantastical kind of mindset because there are a lot of sort of fantastical sequences throughout his movies there's a dream sequence in wild strawberries that that is really kind of bizarre uh and you know persona is is kind of a surrealist film unto itself that's one of my favorite movies of all time is persona great movie uh cries and whispers has a moment where um the sisters get to go in and talk to their sister after she's already dead and have conversations with her like kind of off camera and she actually gives a little bit more of a a frank presentation as to what their nature of their relationship was and they have to start keep on they have to keep on uh, thinking about it and contesting with it. I just want to watch it again now <laughs> just talking about it makes me want to watch it again uh Cries and Whispers was one of those films that came to me through like parodies my mom would talk about it in this weird sort of uh as if it was this like highfalutin kind of film I remember a, a spoof in Mad Magazine about Cries and Whispers as enacted by the characters from Garfield. Uh, <laughs> it's like, what if Garfield and John were, were speaking Swedish and talking about, yes, death will come for us someday. And then Odie shows up and he is death. Uh, that, that's more of a spoof of the Seventh Seal, though. Uh, and when I finally sat down to watch it, I was ready to snicker at it. Mm. Uh, it it's like, you know, Fellini and Bergman are widely parodied for their iconography and what they brought to uh, international art house cinema back in the 1960s and 70s and how that became a big part of the parody culture at the time. That yeah. We're going to make fun of art house cinema. It's going to look like Fellini or it's going to look like Bergman or maybe yeah. Last Year at Mary and Bad, uh, if you've seen Last Year at Mary and Bad. Yeah. Uh, another great film. Uh, great uh, film, very obtuse. Like you, yeah. have to, you have to work at Last Year at Mary yeah, and that, Bad that and you'll one, get a lot one, out of it if you do. That one is homework, but it, it's yeah. good homework. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's fun you, homework. You can't let that movie wash over you. You actually mm. need to, like, it's a puzzle to be solved. Mm. And there's no it's, it's one constructed that way. And yeah. it's no one explanation. Mm. It's all valid. Mm. It's fascinating. I fucking love mm. that movie. Have, have you seen Cries and Whispers? I've not seen Cries and Whispers, which oh, is why right. I shut up. 
Okay. And just let you talk. Okay. Well, thank uh, you. Because uh, I've actually, like, there's mm. only, I think I've seen, uh, sometimes you pick films that I just, I, I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, this, thus far, I've seen everything on your list except Cries and Whispers. And I know I've seen a corny concerto, but you're clearly more familiar with it than I am. Okay. So I didn't really remember it very well. Uh, but yeah, Cries and Whispers, I'm like, you know what? I, I, I got in a couple of digs at Bergman. I, I was going to try to find a place to pitch my uh, uh, Adult Swim series, uh, Ingmar Bergman, Attorney at Law. Which would be very funny. <laughs> just Birdman, but it's Ingmar Bergman. That's that's a funny premise. <laughs> just throwing it out there. Did you commit the crime? Yes, he did, Your Honor. He did because the world is a bleak place. Oh, but isn't there hope, Ingmar Bergman? There is always hope. <laughs> Should I throw him in prison? He is in the prison of his heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good idea. It's a legitimately good idea. I wish we knew some animators. Anyway. What, are, what are we going to do? We're going to go for a pleasant walk on the beach now. All right. Uh, well, in any case, we have your number one left, and then my number two. All right. Uh, I'm curious if they're the same thing, because I know you love this movie. Okay. Uh, but my number two, and again, we're both under the assumption that Citizen Kane is officially number one, hmm. but we're just putting that aside for now. My number two is maybe the single greatest tearjerker ever made. Hmm. Critters 2? Uh, the new, uh, uh, not the new batch. The main course. The main course. The main course. No, no, not Critters Two. Well, it's not Critters Three. No, well, no. Okay. Critters Four might have had a chance. It's the champ. Oh, the champ. The champ. Oh, the champ. <laughs> See, that's the. If you've seen the champ, you know that that. Tone. Oh, they're gonna you know make the, it. Champ's gonna make it. The champ is one of the great. Is it maybe the great Hollywood weepy? Yeah, it's where it's just this exquisitely constructed tearjerker movie, and it's. I don't want to say it's contrived, but it's very structured. It's like math. It's super it's like, melodramatic. Imagine, yeah. imagine you're want you're looking at like Goodwill Hunting, and he's like solving that big giant mm. math problem, like on the board, and then at the <laughs> bottom right, which like equals. Sad, like you've, you've that's the There's, equation for the champ. How do we make people cry? Well, first of all, how about um, uh, uh, a little kid? People, people are sad, little kids who are struggling. Yeah, how about an impoverished little kid? Okay, oh, it can't just be an impoverished little kid. Okay, uh, he's got a dad, but his dad can't really care for him. His dad's a, 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 an addict, his dad can't, can't really take care of him, but it's, the kid really loves him. Yeah, the champ, the champ mm. stars uh, Jackie Cooper, who is maybe the greatest child actor who ever lived. This between this movie and Skippy, yeah, yeah, especially this. The, his last scene in The Champ is some of the best acting you'll ever see. Like, and, and again, he was like nine, like he's uncanny in this movie. Um, but he, he's a, he's a young boy and he's being raised by a single dad. His dad is played by Wallace Beery, who is this incredibly beefy, earnest actor. He just filled a room. But he had a lot of soul, and he was an incredible actor. People don't talk about him enough anymore. Um, and his his dad's a fighter. He's a boxer. He's also an alcoholic who spends all of his winnings, when he wins, on booze and can barely take care of his son. But they love each other. He's not like a, an abusive dad. He's just a bad dad. He's just bad at it. But his son loves him. His son considers him a champ even when he loses. Mm-hmm. He's endlessly supportive, and the dad lives off of the love of his son and his son lives off of the love of their dad and everything else is just struggling to survive, but they're in it together. It's wonderful. And then the boy's mother comes back into the picture and it turns out that she is now living with a new, a new life and she's actually pretty well to do. 
and she wants to take care of her son, and now it's up to the champ to decide, hmm. should I let the child go to her mother? Mother who didn't want to raise the kid. I'm raising this kid. And now all of a sudden she wants the kid back, but can give him a better life. And he has to make that call, and he has to potentially make a really tough decision that is not what his son wants, hmm. but what he thinks is the right thing to do. But then again, who am I to say? I, he doesn't know. Hmm. He's He's a... He's not a smart man. He's an honest man, but he's not a smart man. Mm. And, and he realizes every step of the way yeah. how bad he is for his own son yeah. and how he needs to sep- separate himself from his son for his son's own sake. Even though it's going to personally destroy him, him because his son is all yeah. he's got. Yeah, yeah. And the idea of that separation ends up pushing him into more and more dangerous territory. And it ends in... Seriously, I, 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 there are very few people, I think, who could sit down and watch The Champ. And The Champ is a lean and mean 87 minutes long. You can find the time for The Champ. Okay? The Champ is like four episodes of Nailed It. Okay? <laughs> sit down, you watch The Champ, get swept up in it. It's a little on the nose, but it's so perfect. And if at the end of that movie you're not crying, I'll be surprised. I'll be, I'm not going to judge you because you might have a million reasons why you didn't, but I think the movie is so under, just un, overwhelmingly beautifully effective in its narrative simplicity hmm. uh, that I, I, I just think it works. I think it's like a, I think it's like a wheel, you know, it's not like this, I equate it to a math problem, but maybe it's more simple than that. Maybe it's something it's that a is, recipe. it's a recipe. I think it's, I think it might just be a wheel. Okay. I think it might just be this thing that just works perfectly. And indeed, there's a remake with John Voight in the 1970s. That's also great. <laughs> I think the original's better. But the remake, if that's all that's available and you want to see it, the remake is really fucking good. And the remake will make me cry just as much as the original. So no, it's just a great the, story. I haven't seen the remake, but yeah, yeah. The, the original made me ball. Just yeah. ball and ball Remember, and ball. We covered this not that long ago on... Um, well, I guess it was a while ago now, but uh, on um, only, uh, the best. only the best, yeah, where we review best picture nominated for best picture. But this came out in, like 1931, so it was like the third or fourth annual Academy Awards. And I remember Whitney came over. We were about to record the episode, and I was just finishing up the champ. I was on the last scene of the mm-hmm. champ, and Whitney walked into the room, and he was like, "Oh God, it's the last scene of the champ!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he started crying with uncontrollably. Just right, right there, and it's like. Just seeing a second of it. Just an astoundingly powerful mm. film. Like, really, really great. Performances are amazing. And Jackie Cooper is the fucking legend, man. Mm. Um, anyway, so my number one was Cleo from 5 to 7. We haven't gotten to yours yet. Mm. What's your number one uh, pick, Wendy? My number one pick uh, is... And, and and again, this in uh, with Un Chien Andalou, I use the French title. Uh, the English oh, title is Andalusian Dog. This one, well, it's more commonly known by its English language title. In English language speaking countries, I chose Children of Paradise. Uh, oh, okay. In, in right. French, it is Les Enfants du Paradis. Uh, I, I, feel like, I feel like for consistency's sake, you should have picked one or the other. Just make mm. sure you know that you don't get to put mm. this in when you get to the E's. Look, look <laughs> this is my fudge factory. I can fudge as much as I want. I'm going to say one rule. You can't use the same movie twice. You can't okay. say because it has a French title, you can no, use it goodness. again. You just so, can't no, do that. You're no, using not, it now. You're using it up. Yeah. So okay. yeah, when, when we get to E, I'm not going to choose Les Enfants du Paradis. All right, fair um, enough. Trip of Paradise by Marcel Carnet uh, is 
one of the most astonishing film achievements uh, in cinema history. Uh, it was made in the mid-40s under the auspices of the Nazi occupation. Uh, Marcel Carnet put this together, this three-hour and ten-minute inter- like decade-long epic, uh, essentially with under the, he managed to get like the the Nazi Party's blessing to make this wonderful thing, uh, and I, I don't know how uh, all of this was uh, managed. It feels like a, an act of political rebellion, just making this movie. It's astounding when you look at uh, some of the films that were made mm-hmm. in France under the Nazi occupation and how kind of openly it seems that they were decrying the Nazis, mm-hmm. like. I think the Nazis just didn't know a damn thing about art, which doesn't shock me to think mm. about. But like, I just think like, <laughs> how could you look at some of these films and go, "Yeah, there's nothing subversive about this." I'm like, "Have you seen Le Corbeau? Like, holy shit, dude! What are you fucking? Mm. How did you miss that?" Anyway, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this... I'm not complaining. I'm glad it got made, you fuckers. But like, yeah, mm. weird. But this is a story of. Um... It's sort of, I guess you could describe it as a love triangle. A lot of people compare this to uh, Gone with the Wind. Uh, in terms, I think in terms of the size of its production, its length and its scope, then the, that's the only way you can really compare it to something like Gone with the Wind. This is a theater tale about theater people who work in the theater and who love in the theater. Mm. And uh, the central figure is a character named uh, Garance, played by actress Arletti, who... Uh, in the cor- by the time she had made this film was already sort of a fading star and she plays a character who is a fading star and yet uh, she gets a lot of new life because she gets the attention from a brand new uh, talent in the mime world mm. this young mime uh, named uh, Baptiste played by Jean-Louis Barrault and uh, and she is drawn to him but he's actually kind of naive and he's really childish he's incredibly romantic and he falls deeply in love with her. She falls in love with him, but in this kind of distant adult sort of way. She doesn't need that kind of relationship right now. And uh, a lot of the first part of this uh, movie is about how uh, she and uh, and she has also attracted the attention of uh, Le Canel, this kind of darker figure who knows her a little bit better. He's not as romantic, but is a much better match for, who, for, uh, for Garance. And it's how she has to traverse this world as a star, as a theater figure, as somebody who lives within this world of show business and also has to deal with the the affections of these two people. Then there's an intermission. We come back for part two and time has passed and we get to see sort of the ripples of what had happened with the, the romance years before and how it had marked these people and how they had used their memories to justify current day bad behavior. And I think that's a very human aspect of Mm. children of paradise. This film, in addition to being a very savvy, beautiful, well-acted tale of these lovers loves the theater and it loves show business and it loves presentation and that it is itself an impressive act of presentation is just another deeper sign of its affection for humanity's very basic need to perform and to act in front of one another and how the stories we enact on stage are the stories that we bring off stage and the stories that we live off stage uh, affect on that, that theater is life and life is theater. And if you are at all into theater, well, I majored in theater in college. So this film really spoke to me. Uh, it, it really 
gets under your skin and does make you realize that sort of all the world's a stage speech from as you like it is one of the truest axioms on this planet. Mm. Uh, it is a, a towering achievement. It is a blessed work. It is such an exhilarating film. This was the first film I bought from the Criterion Collection. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it cost $40 at the time. Yeah. I think it still costs $40, but yeah, I bought that two-disc DVD. It was the most I had ever spent for a single film at the time. Wow. Um, I think mine was the, was Grand Illusion. Was, that was the first That was the first one I ever bought. Yeah. yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, I, I'm wondering how much... Um, Somebody on Twitter, I think B. Peterson asked on Twitter, how much have you spent? Like, the most you ever spent, a, most you ever spent for a yeah. single movie. And, yeah. Uh, I think it might have been Brazil because they had that like triple disc yeah. uh, Criterion edition. And I really kind of shelled out for that one. I, uh, I was an eBay collector for a while. I was looking for like out of print movies mm-hmm. and like laser discs back when like you would still get a player. And uh, I think at one point I shelled out about 150 bucks for like a really out of print mm-hmm. uh, laser disc. I want to say it was three by Scorsese. Okay. Uh, but uh, in any case, I, I don't quite recall anymore. And I, I know you can get, um, I think I spent maybe 50 bucks. No, I guess it wasn't that much for, um, there's this, uh, this, the special edition of Showgirls that came with the movie, but it also came with like shot glasses and a poster. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, there are some editions like that. or, or um, The one I wanted was like the this, uh, VHS Casablanca. of Fargo that came with a snow globe oh, of yeah, pushing yeah. someone into a wood chipper. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you can get like gi- gigantic boxes of just The Wizard of Oz, just Singing yeah. in the Rain, just Lawrence of Arabia. Anyway, Those ones probably cost a lot. Um, anyway, but, Children of Paradise. Uh, but Children of Paradise deserves to be mentioned alongside films like Lawrence of Arabia yeah. and and other gi- you know, Ben-Hur and gigantic Hollywood epics because it is one of those epics. And the production is is gigantic. There are these gigantic outdoor street scenes mm. that they had to fake a little bit. Mm. Uh, and so what they did was... They forced perspective. They built smaller and smaller buildings down a street. They built an entire street. Yeah. But they kind of had it reduced so they could put the camera in such a way that it looked even longer. And they also cast little people uh, as to play extras in the background to, to sort of match the size of the buildings. Yeah. Um, just every, everything about this just is impeccably made. And, that, and when you go into the story of its actual making, it just becomes all the more impressive. Well, one of these I, days I, I, I love it. I think it's one of the best movies ever made. One of these days, I really need to see it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> I haven't seen it. What? No, it's okay. No guarantee. Sometimes we miss things. It's one of those film school movies. Yeah. You hear it mentioned a lot well, in film school. It's it's on uh, like the essential art house and the it's, Criterion it's Channel. It's on my list of films to get to. Like you know, I don't. I I've seen a. I've never actually counted, but I've seen probably the majority of the movies that are considered the great movies. Mm. And there's a few that I haven't. And I like knowing that they're still out there. I would be kind of bummed out if I felt like I had seen all the big ones. And this is one of the bigger ones that I just never got around to. Much like Cries and Whispers. Mm. Uh, And one of these days, I will watch them. Maybe someone will force me to watch them in some sort of Maybe some podcasting sort of way. Yeah. In any case. um, Well, those are our picks. For uh, the 10 best movies that begin with the letter C, I'm going to run down uh, both of our top 10s real fast. So you have them all in one place, and we'll have, mm. we sometimes forget to do this, and people really like it. Um, so for me, my top 10, uh, the it's a tie between the original subversive Casino Royale and the newer, uh, straightforward Casino Royale. I think they're both opposite sides of the same coin, they're both brilliant. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Uh, the farcical board game movie Clue, 
the uh, terrifying thriller Cachet, the even more terrifying thriller Cure, uh, the extremely sad but incredibly poignant uh, psychological film Christine, uh, the impressively deep horror film Candyman, uh, the Orson Welles uh, Shakespeare adaptation Chimes at Midnight, uh, the 1931 melodrama The Champ, and Agnes Varda's Cleo for 5-7. Whitney's top 10 were The Castle of Cagliostro by Hayao Miyazaki, Clue, City of God, uh, you know, crime movie, people like it, uh, a corny concerto, an animated short, because he realized he could do that, and I didn't. Uh, a Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick's uh, sci-fi morality tale, uh, Cleo for 5-7. to seven. Uh, Unshane Andalou, the surrealist classic, Orson Welles' Times at Midnight, uh, Ingmar Bergman, attorney at Law's Cries and Whispers, and... Philistine. <laughs> like him, fine. <laughs> and, uh, and Children of Paradise. And, 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 and I'm sure we both had a decent-sized uh, amount of runners-up, movies we also mm. wanted to give a quick mention to. Uh, Whitney, I'll let you go first. Uh, here, here's uh, some classic films that we've talked about recently or are just mm. so well-known that... I don't need to recommend Citizen Kane to you. Yeah. I don't need to recommend Casablanca to you. I, I uh, almost yeah. put it on there, but I figured yeah. I, a I figured Whitney might put it on his list, yeah. but b I figured yeah, I don't, you know. Yeah, so um, yeah. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari we talked about recently. Yeah, uh, Cre- Cradle of Rock was uh, I mentioned in our uh, musicals episode. Yep, wouldn't have made my uh, list, but Crash, uh, the David Cronenberg film I yep. mentioned recently. Uh, Crumb, uh, the documentary I, film yeah. I mentioned recently. Carnival of Souls was on a previous. Uh, uh, we talked about it somewhere. Ghost list. Yeah. Uh, it was a ghost movies list. Yeah. Casablanca, Citizen Kane, Chinatown. And we did a whole commentary track for Cecil B. Demented recently. Yeah. So, so those were uh, films I didn't, I just disqualified. Um, additionally, uh, very quickly, Cachet, uh, the class of 1984, punk rock movie. <laughs> uh, interesting choice. It's a good movie. It's um, interesting choice. I'm uh, not complaining. Kevin Smith's Clerks is a very important movie, yep. uh, especially if you're into like indie cinema. Creature from the Black Lagoon, good monster movie. Okay. Uh, Christine was on there. Christine was also on there, the, the, the <laughs> John, Steve, John Carpenter film about yeah. the killer car. Uh, a Christmas Story, I think, is... Mm, um, I, I, I know it's a cult classic, but I, I feel it's also a lot more subversive than it gets credit for. Yeah. Uh, Candyman, Commando. Uh, really? Is, is a delightful piece of crap. Wow, uh, I'm amazed it ranks that highly with uh, you. City Lights is really good. Uh, Dario Argento's Cat on Nine Tales. Casino, mm. uh, if, if you're into extreme cinema, Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, if you're into silly cinema, Captain Underpants. Uh Brian De Palma's Carrie, Cast Away, the Robert Zemeckis movie, is actually a really? pretty, pretty impeccable piece of In- filmmaking. Interesting choice. Uh, Clueless, an adaptation of Jane Austen uh, that is get deserves every, all the praise it gets. Uh, little 90s British comedy called Cold Comfort Farm with Kate Beckinsale that I'm very fond of. Uh, mm. Michael Mann's Collateral, I think that's one of his uh, best movies. Really good film. Uh, John Waters' Crybaby, which also mentioned in our musicals episode. That's, a, that's an underrated flick. Uh, take your pick, Conan uh, or... Conan or Conan oh, the Destroyer. Conan. Um, I'll yeah. put that on my runners up too. It's uh, officially yeah. Cool Hand Luke, good prison movie. I've never seen that actually. Uh, uh, the stop motion film uh, Coraline is. Uh, yeah, that's really. Good. It's it's a knockoff of a Clive Barker story that I like better, but it's still a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is. Yeah, that's is, a good pick. Uh, just sweet and romantic and great. Uh, a film I watched a lot as a little kid that I have to include just for fondness's sake, Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. Uh, this is a very fun movie. Uh, Cabaret is excellent. Cemetery Man is really kooky fun. Chasing Amy, another Kevin Smith film, mm. uh, was also very important to indie cinema of the 90s. Um, 
Cube, Canadian okay. Twilight Zone episode. Again, that was one I watched a lot in 1997 and then haven't watched a lot since. Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is a very oh, clever movie. Okay. And, and Steven Spielberg's The Color Purple. Those were all on my list. Okay. Well, those are all, uh, mm. those are all good picks. Mm. Um, let's see. Some of them ended up in mine, too. But let's take a look here. Uh, so my runner's up. No particular order. I didn't uh, really frame them the way Whitney did. Uh, Casablanca. Again, just thought it was a bit of a cliche. Uh, Cecil B. Demented. We've talked about it a lot recently. Thought it wasn't necessary. Clueless. It's very 90s, but it's very good. And it's, I think I'll it's, mention, mention, my, mention that, too. I'm just throwing it out there. I didn't think you gave it enough uh, service. Right. Uh, John Carpenter's Christine is a really great horror movie, and I think it's one of the more underappreciated uh, Stephen King adaptations. Uh, it's actually a, a really smart and thoughtful film in addition to just being a badass movie about a killer car. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Stephen King, I think Cujo is one of the scariest movies ever made. Uh, I think it's, okay. it's very, very efficient and it's D Wallace is giving an all timer horror performance in that yeah. movie. It's really underappreciated. I feel, uh, Christmas in Connecticut is my favorite Christmas movie. I had to give it a, <laughs> I had to give it a shout out. I actually think it's a really impeccable uh, clever, funny, uh, uh, romantic comedy. It's a little subversive, actually, if you know what was going on at the time, and I really like it a lot. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that yet. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful anthology-type uh, film. Uh, just absolutely incredible performances throughout. Um, give it some time. It might crack my top ten, but not not yet. Uh, Charlie Varick, starring uh, Walter <laughs> Matthau. That is a good one. Yeah. It's, it's maybe maybe one of the best heist movies that nobody ever talks about. Walter Matthau mm-hmm. robs a bank, and it turns out he stole a bunch of uh, like mafia money. Mm-hmm. And so they send Joe Don Baker out to kill him. This may be the one good Joe Don Baker movie. He's appeared in other good movies, but this is like he's like the second or third lead in this movie, and he's really good. Mm-hmm. And it ends with a massive like fight between... Walter Matthau in a biplane and Joe Don Baker in a car. <laughs> it's a fucking great movie. Please see Charlie Varick. Uh Captain's Courageous recently uh, oh, discovered good, this. Good, good choice. Uh, yeah. For only the best. Um, uh, Spencer Tracy's accent is weird and all over the uh, place, but fine. but as a but as a story of a young boy who like grows up and learns to care about people, it's it's really impeccable. It's really mm-hmm. good. Uh, Carnival of Souls. Uh, Christoph Kierzlowski's Camera Buff is a Ooh. really good film that nobody talks about. About a man who a man who uh, who buys a little movie camera and decides to start making movies, and it's a little interesting sort of look at filmmaking via microcosm. I, I really like it a lot. Um, let's see, got Captain Dr. Caligari. Uh, Casino is not Goodfellas Junior. No, it's its own entity. It's totally its own thing. I get why people thought they were similar. They came out kind of similar times. Uh, Casino is as good, maybe even better than Goodfellas. Like, it's really fucking great. Please Mm. see Casino on its own terms. Uh, A movie that maybe this is ranking a little high, but I really want people to see it. Copycat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah copycat is one of the great serial killer Cop- movies i am convinced Cop- copycat was eclipsed by seven but, yeah it came uh, out just a few weeks afterwards i think it was yeah. the next week like yeah. copycat came out it was another serial killer movie yeah and seven was it's, a monster head yeah, and copycat yeah. just couldn't uh could, couldn't be, couldn't, but, couldn't get a toehold in. people were too busy seeing seven to notice that there was another comparably good movie out yeah. in theaters but it's about similar stuff it's mm. really fucking good uh let's see what we got here creed and creed 2 Oh, yeah. I, I, I like Creed better than Creed 2, but yeah. I, I only I only just recently saw Creed 2. I'd missed it in theaters, and it took me a while to get back mm-hmm. around to it. I think Creed is probably th- one of the great sports movies. 
like right up there with the original Rocky. But I think Creed 2 is a really excellent sequel that actually like follows through on some of the themes from the original. Mm. Um, and um, I, I think it's really smart. I think it's a really excellent sequel. I love it a lot. Uh, the Client, I talk about this movie a lot. I think this is Joel Schumacher's best film. I really do think it's just one of the great legal thriller pot boilers. I, I need to rewatch it because I, really I remember good. liking it at the time, yeah. but I, I wasn't blown away like the way was, you, you have been. I, I, blown away might be an exaggeration. I just think it does everything it does just right. Okay. Like, I'm not saying it's one of the all-time classics. It didn't crack my top ten, but yeah, I don't I, think I, legal thrillers get a lot better is my point. Kronos, anyway. um, Guillermo del Toro's uh, first feature film mm-hmm. about an old man who becomes a vampire. It's... it's Half comic book fantasy, half genuinely tender story about uh, being old. Uh, Cat People, the original Cat People, is oh, a really sad. interesting movie in that the the I feel so like Jacques, Jacques Tourneur did Cat People. Jacques Tourneur, yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like the original interpretation of cat people is, oh, it's so scary to be married to this woman who might be a killer cat monster. And I think if you watch it today, it is impossible not to sympathize with the cat woman. <laughs> like, it's, the, the husband is clearly the asshole. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know if the filmmakers were aware of that, or maybe they, like, flew it under the radar, but, like, yeah, it feels like the whole movie has a different life now than it did when it first came out. You don't, uh, you don't see the cat people, and that's to the film strength. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, Conan the Barbarian, great motion picture. And uh, Child's Play 2. Child's Play 2 is like the first Child's Play on steroids. It's just they, they amped everything up. Well, I, what happened was the original Child's Play, you know, it's about a boy who gets a killer doll, and nobody believes the boy that the doll is killing people. Um, that movie got dramatically rewritten by Tom Holland, the filmmaker who also did Fright Night. Uh, and they took a lot of the ideas that were taken out of the original Child's Play and they put them in Child's Play 2. And I think Child's Play 2 is a more sort of pure experience because it's all from the child's perspective. The original Child's Play got it's turned... From take, the mom's perspective. It's, yeah, it got yeah. taken from the mom's perspective. Oh, I'm so worried about my child. Is he killing people? I don't know. But I think it's scarier to see it from the kid's perspective where I know this doll is killing people. Mm-hmm. And nobody believes me. Because I'm a child. There's this element of helplessness to it that I think really amplifies it. And the finale of Child's Play 2 is like this incredible... Here's what I love about it. It's this incredibly elaborate, almost weirdly gigantic showdown that seems like it took all of its notes from Terminator 2. (laughs) Terminator 2 came out afterwards. (laughs) If anyone ripped anyone off, it was James Cameron. Like It's like, what the... How? Wow. Weird. Anyway, Child's Play 2. Underrated film. Anyway, that is it for the Iron List uh, for this month. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, uh, who who is a patron. Uh, if you want to vote for future episodes of The Iron List and other future episodes of our podcast and get a lot of exclusive shows, some of which we've talked about on this episode, like Only the Best, like uh, All Our Yesterdays, our Star Trek series, uh, Holy Batman, our Batman series, we do commentary tracks as well, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, the poll for next month's Iron List is comprised of uh, topics that were in previous polls that didn't get picked. And so we thought we'd revisit them because we feel like there were some good ideas there and we want to give them another opportunity to shine. So uh, the options for next month's Iron List, and we will do whichever one gets the most votes, uh, are the best biopics ever. Best movies that are about a real life person. Uh, The best movie monsters. Not necessarily the best movies, but the actual best monsters within those movies. Mm. Uh, the best movies with a city in the title. 
Because why not? Because, I don't know. Yeah, why the fuck not? I don't know. These movies have nothing in common except the letter C, so why not <laughs> movies with, like, I don't know, Los Angeles or New York or London or whatever. Like, any movie with a city in the title is fair title. Is, uh, is fair game. And then lastly, the best summer blockbusters. These are the big, giant, money-making movies that came out in the summer. We're going to look at the history of the blockbuster season as we know it, which only dates back as far as the mid-70s. Uh, and uh, we'll look at the films that are actually like genuinely great. Mm. So that's what we would do if you pick that option. So if you head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you'll have uh, the option to vote for that. Uh, if not right away, then pretty soon after this podcast debuts. Uh, so thank you everybody again, once again, especially thank you to our patrons without whom the show wouldn't exist. If you want to talk about uh, anything we discussed on this podcast, in particular any movies that we missed... Uh, that you think deserve a shout out, please email us. Our email is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We'd love to hear from you and maybe read your email aloud and answer it on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we also have a Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and, um, and we got a lot of other things. Besides. We got a lot of other things. We got to go to Etsy and mm. uh, search for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. We're selling soap. And uh, I'm actually going to be releasing a new design. Uh, I think Saturday is the plan. So a little little surprise drop. Not that surprising now, I guess. I kind of ruined it. But anyway, <laughs> you can check it out uh, around midday on Saturday. I'll be releasing a new soap um, that I designed. Yours truly. It's, uh, so again, thank you, everybody. And uh, that's the list. Yeah.